boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, lads and lasses, and those that don't subscribe to our gender, welcome to the GOT Got Questions podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, it happened. It happened. We're here. Season eight, we're here. It happened. We saw episode one. We're getting new content. We have watched it, watched it again, and watched it again. We have our notes. We have our takes. We have our book nerd bitching and our quotes. It is time, folks, for the GOT Got Questions podcast coverage of season eight of HBO's Game of Thrones. Thank God it's finally here. I'm almost crying. This is so wonderful. It's amazing. Oh, man. Let's get a little housekeeping out of the way first. We don't have much of it because we have really been gearing up, practicing, planning, preparing the Triple P for our season eight coverage of Game of Thrones. But Mangum Reads has been uh, up to a few things. Spencer, do you want to give an update on Mangum Reads? Uh, well, Mangum Reads has finished out its run of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. And continuing our trend of doing all things Game of Thrones related into the foreseeable future, our next book to go through will be the second book of the Duncan Egg uh, novellas. Ooh, on brand. Okay, so the full Mangum Talks podcast channel is really gearing up for Game of Thrones here. Getting you your coverage. I know there's a lot of pods out there for Game of Thrones. We appreciate you uh, following us. We hope to make it worth your while. We're going to follow the same structure that we do uh, for all of our rewatch pod uh, uh, where we do coverage of previous seasons. We're going to start with a recap. I will lead that. We will go to best line of the episode. I'm the emperor of best line of the episode. I will pick that. And then we go to book nerd bitching. Now, book nerd bitching is going to be a little weird, right, Spencer? Because we are really far away from the books. But I think what we can do, uh, if you're amenable to it, is try to focus on areas where there's a plot point or there's something that happened that there is context in the book to either explain or criticize uh, that we can draw upon. Yeah, to explain, to explain, to criticize, or to expound. I mean, there are so many topics that the show just doesn't have time to go into the same detail the books can. And so to what degree I can provide extra detail that gives you context in terms of you experiencing this wonderful work, I'm here to offer that. At the same time, if the show makes a decided misstep compared to something that the book has presented, I think we can discuss that. And I think there's one this episode that we may both be inclined to discuss, perhaps in the recap. But we'll see. I might have an idea of what you're talking about. Okay, let's go. This is Season 8, Episode 1, Winterfell. Spencer, did you watch this live? I watched this live. And I, it was uh, sitting comfortably on the couch. Actually, I didn't even watch it live. I watched it two minutes early because HBO Go decided to post it early. Oh, nice. And HBO Go didn't uh, crash on you? They have so massively improved the quality of their streaming over the course of this show. I mean, in the early going, we mostly watched on HBO Go because we we didn't always have the TV hooked up to cable. And in the early seasons, we would maybe be able to watch about 10 minutes at a time before we'd have to stop and let it buffer. Now, we watched the entire thing in perfect HD without the slightest delay or misstep the entire way through. Kudos to HBO for making online streaming a viable choice for enjoying their platform. Nice. Yeah, my, my buddies here work um, in lovely North Carolina were concerned about the HBO Go app, so they all came to my, my new place. We, we just moved in the Friday before, um, and they sat on boxes <laughs> and uh, cluttered couches because I actually had wired cable, so yeah. I was definitely going to be able to watch it. In terms of housekeeping, I do have to say, your decision to move houses on the eve of the Game of Thrones premiere, not necessarily the brightest strategic move in terms of our podcast. Not my choice. Not my choice. <laughs> the market, whims of fate. That's, that's what the market bared. Uh, mm-hmm. That's capitalism, baby. Okay, let's go. Spencer, we got a... Well, first off, we can talk about the, the previously on, but I mean, it was long. That's to be expected. Yeah. There was a lot of catch-up from season seven. I didn't think there was anything in there that deserves a call-out. What do you think? Uh, nothing particularly shocking, particularly when the very, very shocking thing that you want to go into next really needs to be talked about. 
absolutely they switched up the credits neither of Finally. us saw that coming neither of us uh, called that <laughs> yeah well I, I i had a little bit of inside intel uh that they did um which namely is the instagram story from catrice van houten who plays melisandre who recorded it uh which i'm sure she wasn't supposed to from the premiere and I saw that it was a different credit sequence. Uh, I think it's great. I love they switched it up. They clearly spent a barrel of money with it. I could spend probably an hour talking about the new sequence. So I'll make a deal with you and the listener, Spencer. Mm-hmm. I will I will bring up one new thing. One, one thing from the new sequence that I liked each episode. And that's it. I'll, I'll just do one. And then we'll move on. I'm not going to spend 15 minutes on the on the opening credits. Me and my three pages of notes are very disappointed at this limitation. Well... Run it back. How about you do one too? You do one, I'll do one, and then we'll just do that for six episodes. Fine, and, and I'll be very well. We'll address this as one of the, one of the potential points, but I'll be very curious to see whether the uh, the coming episodes, so rigidly as this one did, stick only to what they're going to show. The show's got. I think the they cr- are. I think they got that feedback. That's my that's my gut there. Because the show the show back in its early seasons was pretty rigid about saying, okay, we're going to depict what we're going to show each episode, and we're going to change it based on what new things they go to, with a few fixtures that just form the base and geography of the world. Later seasons kind of lost track of that to a certain degree, or at least had so many fixtures that they were often showing things that we wouldn't see the entire season. At least for this episode, the three things they said that they were going to show us were what they showed us. Yep, I agree. Uh, so I will I will go into the one thing I liked that I'm going to mention for this episode. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, in the previous sequence, they had the sword that had the metal sort of engravings or, or, or you, know, um, you know, kind of illustrations of important scenes within mm-hmm. the story. I think the big one uh, from the previous opening sequence was, you know, the, uh, the dragon being stabbed in the back by the lion while fighting um, the stag, mm-hmm. which is really just a representation of Robert's Rebellion. They have one uh, in the new sequence that I think I really, really like. Uh, it's a lion with a fish in its mouth. And uh, one of the like flayed Bolton men holding a severed head. Yep. So, with, with Red a, Wedding. It, with a corpse sitting between what looks like the uh, Towers of the Twins. So definitely yep. a depiction of the Red Wedding. Yep, the Red Wedding sequence on the sword. I loved that. That's the one I'm going to mention this episode. Yeah, I mean, I'll just build off that. I love how, I mean, previously the images that were depicted in the bands that rotated around the sun, the kind of astrolab effect that they were going with, were very much focused around Robert's Rebellion, events that happened before the show. Now that the show has had so much of its own history, now that the world of Ice and Fire that we've seen explored over the last eight seasons is coming to its end, the images that they're depicting on these bands are the show's own era, its own history, its own epoch. It seemed like we got, you know, Danny's Rebirth of the Dragons back in season one. We um, we seemed like we got the Red Wedding from the end of season three. It seems like we got the downfall of the Wall from uh, um, uh, from uh, Viserion knocking it down at the end of season seven. So I love that now the bands of the world, the various history that's locked in metal and stone, is now the history of the show that they're depicting. So yeah, that that'll be my, my thing to build off yours. Nice. <clears throat> yeah. No, I love it. Um, all right. Do you want to dig into the episode? Oh, please do. All right, we started in Winterfell. And clearly what they were doing here um, is a parallel to episode one. We talked about this in the predictions pod. They let this out of the bag, um, you know, weeks before the episode that they were going to do this. And they held the form. So it's a small kid running around trying to see the army. We can see just, we're from his perspective, but from what he can see and what we know, it's the Unsullied army that's marching. 
And when the kid's running around, you know, trying to see between people's legs and climbing up on trees, Aria sees him, which I think is really great because, you know, she gives this like knowing smirk because she was doing the same thing when King Bobby B was coming into Winterfell in, in episode one of season one. It, it is so much harkening back to it, down to, the, again, the kid being the stand-in for Arya or Bran. Even the music that they're playing is the music of, of, of Robert's triumphal arrival. And then every little plot point they play forward, every little depiction they do, harkens back to it. Like when John is walking in on horseback the same way that Robert did before. When Danny walks up Cersei-style and everyone suddenly goes cold to her the same way they did Cersei back in the day. It's really playing out the same points once again. Yeah, and, and to just jam it home, they even played the Baratheon theme, which I thought, <laughs> I thought was like, like, I mean, Gendry, I guess, is coming, but it's kind of inappropriate. But I think they just wanted the casual fan to make the connection. Yeah, it, it, that, it, it has a royal uh, as a royal aura to it based on how they played it previously in the past. Agreed. Uh, so one thing to shout out here is uh, Danny and John are riding next to each other. Um, just what, you know, uh, John proposed in the end of season seven. He says, look, if they see me and you riding together. Uh, it's more likely that they'll trust you. I'm not sure that necessarily worked because Danny's getting mean mugged by everybody in Wintertown, which Wintertown is the is a, is a kind of um, settlement outside the walls of Winterfell uh, mm -hmm. that folks are in, that they're going through it on their way to Winterfell. But man, Danny's seriously getting mean mugged. Arya sees John. She almost calls out to him. Very sweet moment there. Um, yeah, we she got, also sees... Go ahead. Yeah, in very rapid succession, we got, what was it, three... Um, kind of one-sided reunion moments for Arya's, where, as you said, she sees John, and then she sees uh, the Hound and Gendry, all in rapid order. Three people, three people that she's not seen in years. She had to be a little. Like, I, I didn't think that Maisie Williams, and it might not be her fault because she might not have gotten the direction. She should have seemed a little bit more surprised to see Gendry with that crew. Yeah, she kind of, um, she just kind of took that one in stride. I almost have to wonder whether they'd uh, or previously gotten a message that Gendry was part of like the party that went north of the Wall or something, because she did not seem shocked. I expect her to be sort of mouth agape there. Um, and I got to tell you this, um, you know, Danny's getting mean mugged, but so are the Unsullied because like Grey Worm, Missandei, they're looking at each other like, oh man, this is this is a bad vibe. And I got to ask you this question, Spencer, if the Unsullied are getting this much mean mugging, what did they do to the Dothraki? <laughs> we didn't get to see much of that. We also didn't really get to see the numbers of the Dothraki in their hordes. Really, the bulk of the forces we saw marching in were the Unsullied. We saw a few Dothraki riding between them, but... Remind me, aren't the Dothraki the largest arm of Danny's army? Yeah, by far. I think what what was the number? About twenty five thousand unsullied, and a hundred thousand Dothraki. Now that does include women and children, uh, so you're probably looking more at about fifty thousand folks who can actually fight. Yeah, I, uh, but that's still about double the Dothraki uh, I, or the, the unsullied army. Yeah, I didn't. Even, I didn't even remember it being that many unsullied. I thought it was closer to ten. But you know, it it is. Clearly, there is a bulk of Danny's forces that she decided not to ride in in procession. Now, likely, it's because of the same visual reasons that we saw. The Unsullied may be getting uh, some harsh glances, but at least they're an organized, disciplined military force that can march in order and impress the crowd. I'd also be a little concerned to have the Dothraki just going through there because oh, yeah. you look at the you look at the Dothraki sideways, they might slap you. Yeah, you look at the Dothraki sideways, they might slap you. Or you know, the level of discipline in the Dothraki army is probably as much as you can watch them. <laughs> Uh, I expect the Dothraki, trying to keep the Dothraki on a chain with respect to their tendency to go out raiding and pillaging is difficult at best. Yeah, totally. Um, Danny is unhappy, and then the dragons fly over. Um, and she seems to like this, and I think this is one of many missteps that Danny makes in this episode. Um, I think she likes that the Northerners are scared and amazed at these beasts. 
I'm not sure this was the right time to introduce them. I mean, it's a lot for them to take in already. I mean, this huge-ass fucking army is coming in. Their king has already knelt. Uh, here's the new queen. And then on top of that, you fly dragons over them. Like, maybe give it a second, Danny. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you're, 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 you're asking a lot of these northerners right now. Danny, Danny comes across as being rather impatient about getting people supportive of her. That she, her default is, okay, I'll make them love me. But the moment that they don't immediately want to just embrace her as a mother figure the way so many of her followers have in the past, she immediately goes to, okay, I'll turn to fear. It seems almost like this this dragon plan of this dragon arrival of hers was in some way planned because she seemed downright smug after people kind of ran away and bowed before in response to it. And I agree with you. It's a mistake that she makes several times over the course of this episode of where she's very much trying to wear the imperious queenly mask in a way that just really doesn't work with a northern mindset. No. And, and John tries to tell her over and over again. It's the reason that he didn't kneel immediately. I mean, if he thought that the northerners would have followed him by kneeling to Danny, he probably would have knelt right away because he, as he points out many times in this episode, what he cares about is making sure that the North, that the North is properly armed for this battle. He doesn't care about titles, mm -hmm. but he always knew that it was going to be a hard sell for the Northerners, you know, uh, to embrace a Targaryen queen considering their history. I mean, the idea of the Northerners embracing anyone who isn't of the North, who isn't of their customs or anything else, is a tortured enterprise. To have it do it with a true foreigner leading a foreign army, John knew this was going to be a hard sell, and he's trying to get her to nuance the presentation of it, and it's just not her nature to do it. No, it's not. Um, and then, so Arya sees the dragon. She's amazed. Uh, we oh, saw yeah. this shot in many of the promotional uh, videos for season eight. But then Sansa sees them. Um, what did you think of Sansa's reaction to the dragons? Uh, unsettled at first, then falling into this kind of just stalwart determination behind it. Of where watching them go over the walls truly seemed to have rattled or surprised her for a moment. Um, but afterwards, she seems like she's just falling behind a base of whatever it is, I'll be able to overcome it. It seems like she almost just gets more determined after she sees them fly off. Yeah, it was, it was very Cersei-esque. Mm -hmm. her reaction how Cersei you know treated seeing the dragons in season seven where she almost treated the the amazing nature of the dragons as as more of a motivation to not show emotion right it's just this is another thing for me to overcome this is something I will not let them see me weak kind of uh, response to it well I, I gotta ask um Arya's reaction to Jon and Gendry I felt like was more emotion than we've seen out of Arya in like two seasons just even in this early going is that she seems legitimately happy in a way we've not seen Arya in a while. Yep, yep. And this is something that's going to come up a lot during the episode. Oh, yeah. Um, that that, that she is, she's different um, with people, certain people from her past. She will still open up, which is great, because it shows there's still a little a little human inside that killing creature that she's become. Or, or it even suggests that a lot of the killing creature is more of a, is similar to the armor that, that Sansa's wielding, a facade that she puts on for her own protection and for the intimidation and threat of those around her. That maybe we're actually just seeing the real Arya underneath rather than just something that she, a buried remnant. Yeah. Anyway, John and Danny ride in a Winterfell courtyard. It's that scene you're talking about that parallels when Robert and Cersei and crew come in in season one. Mm -hmm. John gets off his horse, runs over and kisses Bran. I love this interaction. Look at you. You're a man. Almost. <laughs> yeah. So Brand, 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 basically what Brand, Brand, see, John is saying you're a man, you've grown up. 
Bran is saying I'm almost human. Like, I don't yeah. think he's, he's addressing the fact that he hasn't grown up. I think he's saying I'm not really one of you guys anymore. And I love how nonplussed John is right away of where he's so overjoyed. He's so overjoyed. And Bran says that. And John just suddenly looking at this saying, what is going on here? I'm lacking a bit of background about what has happened to this person. Yeah. And there was a little bit of a sort of smirk from Sansa because she knew that was coming. I really didn't like that smirk. This is a very yeah. meaningful, heartfelt moment for John. He's just been rattled in a way that she was before, and she's kind of happy about it. She's amused at his discomfort. No, she's what? amused that she knew something he didn't. And ah, that's constantly through this episode with Sansa. And I told you, that's I good call. You, I texted Spencer. All the listeners, I texted him last night. I said, Spencer, get ready, get your boxing gloves on, get your dukes up, because I'm coming at Sansa's head this episode. You, um, you got grounds. You've got grounds to go after this episode. She is wearing her little finger Cersei lessons on her sleeve far too much, and yeah. it, yeah, it, it, it rubs me wrong. Yeah, she does have a good line though, because John then looks at her and says, "Where's Arya?" Which I although also is a callback to, to season one. Yeah. Um, when Ned asks Sansa, "Where's Arya?" Catelyn. And in season one, you know, Sansa just because I don't know. Here, yeah. Sansa has a good line. She just goes, "Lurking somewhere." <laughs> it's a very accurate response at any given moment of where Arya is. Yeah, she's about. Yeah, well, at least Sansa lets her kind of do her thing. Yeah. Well, who's gonna tell her otherwise? Practically. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Danny walks over to Sansa now where I'm going to go through some of the quotes from this interaction but I would like to point out just visually Danny really stands out in white um, compared to the dark colors that everyone else is wearing and I think she probably does that on purpose um, because she's the queen right she's she's different but that's that's actually a bad look in the north you don't really want to try to stand out or be apart from them you want to have this sort of you know toned down utilitarian look and she is ornamental as can be with a, 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 a admittedly fly jacket but i just don't think that plays in the north it, it's a great outfit it's wonderfully danny but if they then the, the, the um, costume people did a wonderful job in doing the color contrast because white on red the outfit she goes with again is gorgeous it's perfect for her character but it could not be in more contrast to the muted gray and black and brown we see everywhere else in this world of the north it, and again a parallel with cersei right because cersei comes out in that crimson red and yeah. that stands that pops in uh, season one too yeah and just even the lines uh, that the characters said well we're, we're going to the dialogue now but i just love how much this is just mirroring the moments of a uh, uh, john of, of john and danny compared to robert and cersei yeah so uh john brings danny over to uh sansa and says queen daenerys of house targaryen mm -hmm. my sister sansa stock lady of winterfell Leanna Mormont is really perfecting the patented northern overly aggressive <laughs> mean mug here. That actress can, f man, her ability to mean mug people is incredible. And she's at an 11 here. And then Danny gives the big, queenly, gracious smile. Thank you for inviting us into your home, Lady Stop. Mm -hmm. The North is as beautiful as your brother claimed. Fair you. Very cordial, very formally polite. It's every bit of politeness that she's been schooled in for years. To which Sansa can barely return a quarter of it in terms of politeness. She, it takes her a couple whole seconds to even smile, which is, I mean, it's a, I mean, the, the level of disrespect here is is out of bounds, and it to me it feels like Sansa is overplaying her hand, and she does it multiple times this episode with Danny. I think it will catch up to her in episode two. We will see. Um, but she just looks at her, looks down at her, which I mean she can do because she's like six foot tall. Finally, musters a smile and says, "Winterfell is yours, your grace." 
And then Bran, who I love, man, I gotta tell you, Bran is the MVP of this episode. He just barks at them. We don't have time for all this. <laughs> the Night King has your dragon. He's one of them now. The wall is falling. The dead march south. And I gotta tell you, another reaction I wasn't expecting. I really thought when Danny heard that Viserion had turned and was another, she would be really upset. She looked a little rattled, but like not much. And maybe that's just a factor of she knows she's in the courtyard and everybody's looking at her. Yeah, Danny's pretty good about hiding emotions from those in the crowd that might, you know, weaken her position in that regard. But I expected there to be a bit more follow-up on that. Because that's a hell of a big reveal. The wall's yeah. fallen. Fine. They now have, you know, zombified one of my dragons and the Night King's friggin' riding him? That's news I did not know or expect or have any way to assume. Yeah, and you, and I mean, with all her talk of these are my children, these are my children, you would think that would be really, really emotional for her. Well, we just don't see it. Maybe it was. I don't know, but I just love Bran. He's operating on a whole other level. He's got Bran rules. He will cut off the queen and tell her, we don't have time for this. Like, who else would ever speak to her that way? Oh, yeah. Um, Bran he, is the man. I, he, love, I love how he rolls in this episode. He, I mean, he's sitting among all the lords of the north in the Vale. He's sitting with ne he's sitting next to the Lady of Winterfell. He's got a king and a queen in front of him, and he's like, fuck your politics. Let's get down to brass tacks. I don't think he even needs that. I, don't, I think if he was by himself, he oh, would yeah. still bark at her. Like, I mean, he just does. I mean, Bran just is. He's got Bran rules. He, no, just, no, he, he operates on his own I'm, I'm uh, wavelength, and I love it. I'm saying it's even more egregious that he's among that crowd and just doesn't give a damn despite oh, that collapse. He's, he's disrespecting her in front of everybody. I got what you're saying. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, he, cut, he cuts right to it. And then from there, we, well, it's suggested that either A, he's told sense of this before, or B, reasonably, the knowledge of the wall coming down is permeated throughout the, throughout the north pretty quickly. I think he, I think he told him. Uh, he told Sansa that that was my read on that. Um, I also think that John didn't seem as shocked that the wall fell as I would expect. Um, you know, that's a big thing for him. I mean, he guarded the wall. The wall's a very big deal for him, and he knew that if the wall ever fell, that's when shit would get real. Um, so I, I just I expected more of a reaction. Maybe they didn't have time for it. Yeah, um, I think we're I think we're going to be saying that a lot of where I expected more, but they didn't probably didn't have time. It's probably going to be a theme throughout this season to a certain degree. We got six episodes to complete a lot of plot. So then we cut to oh, speaking of that, Spencer, do you know the uh, the updated run times? Uh, you know I saw them a while ago. I don't think I've, I don't think I don't think I've seen the updates. So before the finale was supposed to be the longest episode. Um, now they have added 22 minutes to episode three. Episode three is going to be 82 minutes, the longest episode um, of the entire series. Holy shit. The Battle of Winterfell, the Battle of Light and Dark, the Battle of Ice and Fire, whatever else you want to call it. Good God, that thing's going to be epic. 82 minutes. But then we cut to the, wall, the Hall of Winterfell, and Sansa explains that she called all the banners to retreat to Winterfell. Upon news that the, um, the wall fell, she asked Lord Umber where his men are, and he's this little Ned Umber, he's all of maybe, what, four foot five, <laughs> stumbles out and says, they need more horses and wagons. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, he he does this weird thing where he's like, uh, uh, my lord, my lord. And then he looks at, you know, John and says, my lord. And then looks at Danny and says, my queen. Danny seems to like this recurring theme in this episode. If you call her queen, you get on her good side. She's pretty easy to read. Mm -hmm. um, John also says to call the Night Watch back to Winterfell. That's pretty low-hanging fruit. Yeah, no, no reason to, to guard the wall anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and and when he gives that order, someone who he gave the order to says, I want your grace. Little Leona Mormont does not like this. Uh, your grace. But you're not, are you? 
uh, Leanna Marmite, giving John the business here for giving up his crown. John musters a defense. He says the title's not important, and that is not what Leanna Marmite wanted to hear. Not important. We named you King of the North. Mm-hmm. He did, my lady. It was the honor of my life. John explains that he left to get allies, and he was faced with a choice. Keep his crown or help save the North. I chose the North. And Seems to be enough to placate him for now. Spencer, what do you make of this interaction? It is very much in character for Liana to challenge people about their authority. There is not; she has no qualms whatsoever about confronting those in power about where she feels they have missed up or disrespected those that are under them. This is an important thing to call John on, but John really hits a classic Northern point with this: uh, that the willingness of the Starks to self-sacrifice, to give up their own titles and lands to protect their people is something that is treasured in the north. We're going back to like, you know, Torrin Stark, the, the, the uh, last king of winter, the king who knelt, rather than uh, risk his army, risk his people to the Targaryen flood that was descending on Westeros. This is very much a classic northern theme. And as you said, it seems to calm them. There's still a lot of murmuring. There's still some people that are a little bit uh, disconcerted by this, but at the very least, they're tolerating it because he's saying the things that they will need to hear in this moment, that yes, you gave me this title. Yes, it was the greatest honor of my life. Yes, I gave it up, but I had a reason, and the reason was you. Same way you gave me power, I gave it up to give, the, in some ways, the power in life back to you. That's a good. Yeah. That's, that's a good look for John. Oh, he won me over. I mean, I, 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 I'm just flabbergasted that he didn't. That the conversation wasn't over then, but I guess the Northerners are stomping his goats, as we're well, going to hear later. Well, um, the conversation right. in some ways didn't end because Tyrion chose to stand up. And I really disagree with his decision to say a damn word in this moment. I disagree. I think he should have said the first part and shut up. <laughs> Definitely not because the second part, though. he stands up and he does make the point. He says, hey, look. If we survive this, it'll be because of Jon Snow. We were not convinced until he risked his life to convince us to bring the greatest army the world has ever seen to dragons, Dothraki, Unsullied. We're here because of him. If he sits down then, I think that's a win. I think he he, he co-signs John's effort. But Tyrion, oh my God, Tyrion. I, and you know, this is a thing where we've talked about the, the slow descent of Tyrion's character into mediocrity, and he's mired in it now. But I do feel really bad for him because I feel like when he thought that he had convinced Cersei to bring the Lannister army north, he really thought he did something great. I, I, and he was so proud that his family, his family's army, were go- was going to participate in this. And you can tell when he, he brings it up constantly in this episode, he wants to believe it because he wants to have that pride in where he came from. Um, but it, it was not a good thing to bring up Uh I mean, just not at all. I mean, even if the Lannister army was coming, I still wouldn't have brought it up right then. I would have introduced it a little bit more tactfully. No, and him standing up alone is awkward because he is a Lannister in Winterfell. That's never going to be a good look anyway. And him standing up, again, represents that Danny's Hand of the Queen is a Lannister. Also not necessarily good from the impression that the Northerners would have of this. I agree that the first thing he says is fine. It's a point they need to emphasize. It's perhaps emphasizing too much again the amount of foreigners that are in Winterfell, but you need to get you need to ease them into that concept. Hitting the Lannisters again, man. We talked about last season that that is so friggin' dumb and out of character of Tyrion to believe Cersei at all on anything ever, regardless of the fact she has a kid. And I debate whether she has a kid. He would not trust her. He has too many years of reasons not to trust her. He's not dumb enough to make this mistake. But the show, as you said, is going down hard on the idea that he 
has really relied on this in his mind that his family is willing to commit to this, that his brothers, that he can trust his brother that this is going to happen, that Cersei has reasons and family that he can share and support. But it's just dumb and out of character for Tyrion to be so invested in this, and it's even more dumb and out of character for Tyrion to think that anyone in this room wants to hear that. I agree. I agree, but I do think that that part of this is that Tyrion has always had some level of um, he's got some level of pride in the Lannister name, um, sure. especially what his father accomplished. I mean, he he talks about that a lot, right? He talks about um, like remember when he was talking about uh, invading Casterly Rock, and he was like, "Look, these are still the same soldiers that mm-hmm. my father trained. They're well provisioned. They're well trained." Like he 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 has pride. In, in the Lannister army, and, I, and that, that bore out during Field of Fire 2.0. Sure. When he was really emotionally affected that his that they didn't even really put up a fight. Um, and I think he really just wants to believe that when push came to shove, his family's doing the right thing. I, I just and I think he, he was taking some pride in telling them that the Lannister army was coming. I just worry that the show often tries to emphasize that another character is smart by making another by making a character that we know is smart do something dumb. And I don't think it needs to do it that way. You can celebrate a character without de- minimizing or diminishing another. But with Tyrion, it seems like that they have just weakened him at, to make other characters around him, like Cersei and like Sansa, look smarter by comparison. And I just, it, it, it hurts me in some ways that they've done that to the character. Yeah, and I, I got more of that last season. I mean, here I think it's more of an emotional thing. Maybe. He, he's just taking pride in, in this. And it's going to be a man, episode two is going to be tough. It, when Danny, when, when Jamie tells Tyrion they're not coming, it's going to be crushing for him. It will. And I'll be very curious to see that because it may re- rehabilitate in my mind some of what uh, we see depicted here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh. <coughs> oh, boy. Um, a lot of pollen out. Um, <laughs> then, then. This is one of the instances, then probably the primary instance of the episode where I think Sansa overplays her hand. She's doing so because she's got a she's got a good crowd. You know, it's kind of like uh, you're a comedian. You got a you got a good crowd. They're following you. Maybe you you go a joke too far, and she goes, "May I ask, how are we meant to feed the largest army the world has ever seen?" This is this is so frustrating, and it's like it's a it's a recurring theme that John should have a conversation with Sansa before they get into the Great Hall. Yeah, we've seen that a lot. Because Sansa has not seen the Army of the Dead. Mm-hmm. And what John and Danny can tell her is the last thing you need to worry about is food because half these motherfuckers are dying. Like, mm-hmm. we're not... It's within a week, <laughs> we're going to be decimated if we... At very best. We, we You're not going to have to feed the greatest army the world has ever seen. Because a lot of people are going to die. There's like 150,000 dead men coming at us with a dragon. Like, it's going to be a problem. Like, and Sansa doesn't know that because she she hears John talk about the army of the dead, and I think she dismisses a lot of it. Um, and she just hasn't seen it. She doesn't know quite what the threat is. So to me, focusing on how you're going to feed people who are about to go into a, a, a nuclear war um, is a little short-sighted and uninformed. I mean, it, it, this is a conversation that John and Sansa have had before, of where he's, again, talked to her several times about, okay, you have good views, you have intelligent views, I appreciate your advice. Don't diminish me in public, though, before our people. I'm a king. I need their authority. I, I, need, I need the authority they give me from their respect. And I can't have you constantly second-guessing me belittlingly. Sansa bringing this up is a good logistical question. 
I agree with you. It's a it's a logistical question they likely may not have to worry about if they even survive the next week. Um, but it's a reasonable point to bring up that, you know, we've assembled more people right now in the North than the North could ever reasonably provide for. It's a question the show kind of punts on about, okay, even feeding these people for a few days is probably unreasonable unless they brought out a lot of resources with them. But even if it's a good logistical question, it's not one to bring up now. They, Tyrion has in some ways recovered from his misstep, has brought them back around to Jon's recurring theme, and then she's immediately trying to undermine it again. This is her, as we've seen several times in this episode, she's fully convinced that those in the room are on her side. She's fully convinced that she is in some ways the leader that the people around here are picking. And so she's in effect trying to undermine John and Danny so that she can reassert control of the situation, so that she can appear in charge, so that she, as John kind of notes later, can appear like the smart one in the room. Uh, and it's just, it's unnecessary, it's petty, it's showing a weakness in her that she feels the need to continually do this throughout the episode. And, and in ignorance. She is ignorant of the, the threat they face because if she knew it, she would know. We're, we're, you're only going to have to feed these people for like three or four days. And I'm sure they brought food with them. I mean, they, they couldn't have traveled without bringing food with them. hope so. Um, so there's no, it's a, it's a small concern considering they're all just about to face certain death. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she would know that if she would talk to John and take his counsel. But instead, like you say, she chooses to undercut him in a room where she thinks she's winning. And then she goes way too far. And yeah. she snaps. What do dragons eat? Anyway, Danny at this point has had enough and turns and looks at her and just goes, whatever they want. Sit down, Sansa. Oh, and yeah. Sansa got the got the message there. She and, she did back up a little bit, but to snap and say, well, what the dragons eat? Anyway, you need to be fucking really grateful that you got dragons. What they eat? That's your concern? Danny brought two Westerosi nuclear weapons to help save your your whole kingdom, and and you're concerned about what they eat. God, she just seems small in the moment. What do you th- what do you think of the implied threat behind what Danny said there? Because she turned to her with a certain amount of smug daggers as she said that line, and there's definitely an undercurrent of threat that's attached behind that as well. Is that you know I've brought this massive army to your doorstep. I did it to save you, but it's still my army. Consider your position right now. No, I think that's exactly that. That's why I, in all caps in my notes, I say, sit down, Sansa, because I yeah. think that's the message Danny is sending her, saying, I understand this is your house, but you you are going too far here, uh, considering, A, that I could just wipe you out, you and the Northerners out, any second I wanted to, uh, and two, that I'm risking everything to try to save you fuckers who seem to hate me. Mm-hmm. Matt, we have to do, it is worth noting, though, Sansa's probably not wrong that in some ways she is the better look to a lot of Northerners now than John and Danny are. That they view her as much more representative of their interests and their concerns. She's just wrong to believe that that better look has any relevance with what's coming against them, as you said. And this is to a degree on John, but really. She needs to know uh, her uh, what the limits of her knowledge are. And on John, John really needs to have conversations with Sansa before he goes in public. Because he already knows this is a weakness in their relationship that keeps coming up. No, I mean, Sansa, this is like, it's like if you're a manager and you have an employee under you. And you have a group of people that you're having to, to work with. And your employee is more popular with them than you are. Yeah. The, what your employee should be doing is to build you up. 
Sure. Take that equity, that social equity that they have earned and put it upon you so that you can be successful, so that the organization can be successful. And that is what Sansa should be doing. Sansa should be using the role and the trust that the Northerners have to try to bridge the gap. But instead, she's separating them further. What? And I think that's a it's a short sighted, ridiculous thing that she's doing. And I think it's I think that the vanity um, and the and the out of control self confidence from Sansa that we're getting this episode is just starting to come through. I mean, can you imagine barking at at basically at Danny? What is that? Anyway, what what that that was to me that was just so out of bounds that I, I I'm, I'm part of me is surprised that Danny only said whatever they want and didn't say much more. I mean, it's a situation where Sansa clearly is very smart and very capable and very intelligent, but we're seeing in some ways the limits of her training and who she trained under. I mean, the main people she cites as her teachers in terms of her exposure to this world are Littlefinger and Cersei. And we're seeing a lot of the negative aspects of their particular motivations and their particular perspective on leadership embodied in how Sansa's carrying herself in some of these situations. Completely agree. Okay, I think we, we hit that one. We cut Gendry is helping unload Dragonglass. I told you during our season seven coverage, you tried to talk about how long did they have to and how to, to mine the Dragonglass yeah, and how yeah, many yeah. ships. And I told you they Didn't gave matter. service to this. Power plot. They, they gave you enough screen time that Dan and Dave think that we are to believe that they now have enough Dragonglass. And it looks like they do. Um, I like to see that Gendry has a real important role to play here in, in mining the Dragonglass. Um, and in that moment, Tyrion sees Sansa with Bronzeon and walks over. I'm going to go into this, but Spencer, let's do a little bit of a, just a quick, because me, one thing that the listeners should know, me and Spencer and I have not talked about this episode at all until we Oh, no, no. That's half the fun of this, is be surprised by each other. So I really want to know what you think of this reunion. Um, well, what, one of the things that strikes me first is that it really does tie into the amount of loyalty and respect that Sansa has from the various lords that have now arrived in Winterfell. Bronzeon has not necessarily been here that long. He rode with the Vale forces. He's one of the senior lords of the Vale, one of the lords paramount, if you want to tie back to the books. But the moment Tyrion walks up, Bronzeon does not even acknowledge Tyrion, does not even react to his presence until Sansa gives him her leave. Well, we know why Sansa is taking counsel from Bronze Young. Because he says in season seven, oh, we, re- we, we came here for you, not John. He, he, go, he went so far as to basically push Sansa's claim oh, yeah. in the North while John was still king. Um, so Sansa loves that. I mean, completely loyal to her. So, she, yeah, of course she's taking counsel from that guy. And you're right, Bronze Young was very dismissive of uh, Tyrion until Sansa lets him go. Uh, quick question for you. Um, if Tyrion had just showed up and he wasn't Danny's hand, what do you think Sansa would have done with it? That is an interesting question that I really didn't ponder. I mean, I feel like in some ways she might treat him better. I think she implies that with that scene if he had just arrived in some ways in a weaker position to her and not associated with people that she deems a threat to her base of power. Agreed. Yeah, Co- completely co-signed. I think that if Tyrion had just showed up and said, hey, look, I'm here to try to help any way I can, I think Sansa would have been very warm, or at least warm-ish. She's a little bit warm here, but he's he's, try- he's trying to extend an olive, bra- olive branch that she's not necessarily gra- grabbing. Um, he starts it out with, last time we spoke was at Joffrey's wedding. Miserable affair. Sansa, good line here. It had its moments. Yeah, that, that is a cold, delightful Sansa line. But, I mean, yeah, that's a potential line of the episode. 
I agree with you that even when Sense is trying to be warm, is making an effort to be warm here, she has to condition it. Of like, you know, he says, you know, you've come up in the world. You're Lady of Winterfell now. And she says, you have too. You're Hand of the Queen. And then something along the lines of, for, the, for, for, for one queen anyway, or some diminishing line like that. Where even when she's acknowledging his position, she has to take the effort to say, I do not approve of who you've picked it for that. Yeah, I think it's something like uh, Lady of Winterfell. That's a, that's a great title. And she says, so is Hand of the Queen. Uh, it depends on the queen, I suppose. Yeah, that's um, the line. Yeah. Uh, Sansa apologizes. For, here's a quick question about Sansa, because I'm going to continue to just beat her up. <laughs> Did she smile one time this entire episode? Uh, well, she smiled when uh, John was surprised and in lack of knowledge about Bran. We talked about that one. That may be right, the only yeah, so one. The only smile she has is a condescending smirk at John when he has just met his brother again for the first time in like eight years. Mm-hmm. What a jerk. Anyway, Sansa apologizes for leaving the wedding, and Tyrion's like, well, yeah. Um, and Sansa, then Sansa says, well, we both survived. That, that dismisses my behavior. Um, Tyrion says, then Tyrion again, trying to extend olive branch, trying to be kind to her. He says, many underestimated you. Most of them are dead now. She just lets that go. Um, what? Tyrion again brings up, oh, go, go ahead. Yeah, I, th- I don't even think she lets that go. I think she puffs up a little bit about that. I think she has a, she actually responds with no small amount of pride to that compliment. That Tyrion clearly means it as a compliment. I think he's even hearkening back to a line in like season two of where he says Sansa uh, that she'll outlive us all. Um, that clearly he this I clearly think he clearly means this as a compliment. I think Sansa clearly takes it that way. Um, I think that's in um that's when Joffrey is beating her in the throne room and ripping her clothes off, and then Tyrion comes in and stops it. Uh, and then he says, you know, do you want to end this marriage? I can do that. And she goes, I'm loyal to my, my beloved uh, King Joffrey. And she walks away and he mutters to himself, Lady Sansa, you may survive yet. Or you, may, yeah. you may live yet or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I think she really does take that as a compliment. Meant as a compliment, she takes it as a compliment. It, clearly she's proud of it. Um, but what's re- interesting next scene, ne- next part of the scene is when Tyrion attempts to establish a camaraderie with her about Cersei and about the Lannister forces. So like, okay, I know that this is a big ask. I know everybody's a couple with this. I acknowledge that the that everyone's fears about Cersei are justified. But Sansa just cuts into him with a really biting line. Of, yeah, it was tough. Yeah, she goes, she says, um, you know, basically like, Cersei told you that. Yes. And you believed her. And then Tyrion's like, well, she has something to live for now, but I believe she wants to, you know, live. She'll do this. And Sansa, potential line of the episode, although I'm not going to pick it because she's mean. I used to think you were the most clever man alive. That's a that's a real deep cut to Tyrion right there. And it shows just how superior minded Sansa's feeling about herself right now. Um, it's in some ways merited, because I agree that Tyrion's behaving very foolishly here. But it's, again, just very... It's very Cersei. It's very, I'm in a position of queenly power, I can say whatever I want, and you just have to take it. It's not a good look for Sansa going forward. No, no, it's not. And, and you know, Tyrion has always been nice to her. She's very even much admitted, so. it, admitted it to other folks when talking about her experience in King's Landing. She should have been nicer to him here. Um, John is at the Godswood, and Arya comes up behind him. And he turns around... Um, and she says, you used to be taller. It's a funny line. That's such a little sister line. It you is. used to be taller. I love that line. <laughs> How did you sneak up on me? How did you survive a knife through the heart? I didn't. <laughs> Good line. <laughs> and I adore the emotional reactions at the scene. I like that when John first notices her, this is, a lo- this is an emotion from Ari we've not seen in a while. She's pensive. 
She's uncomfortable. She's worried about how he'll react to her. And it's it's an adorable mode of innocence that we've just not seen in this Terminator of a character they've built around Arya in a long time. And after they share that line together where, you know, I didn't, you can just see the this just mean mug massage that Arya wears all the time just collapse as she just, with honest, almost crying emotion, just leaps into Jon's arms. And I'm just squeeing with glee with the characters as I'm watching this happen. Yeah, we've been looking forward to this forever. I knew it was going to go down this way regardless of how, in your words, Terminator um, Arya has become. Um, John notices needle. He loves that. She's still got needle. Have you ever used it? <laughs> Once or twice. Well, John, look, I know it's, it sounds crazy, but John has no reason to know what Arya's been through. So, um, I, I think he's going to find out pretty quickly. Um, <laughs> go ahead. And, and, and again, the moment she says that once or twice, she puts on the same kind of expression that she had when she first walked up on John. She really wants John to like her. And it's almost this just worry about how he's going to respond to her saying that. She doesn't want John to see her in necessarily the light of what she's become, I think, in some ways. I think he wants, she still wants John to see her as Arya, as the, girl, as the, as the little girl that, uh, the, that they so, uh, so much enjoyed each other with in the past. Yeah, and a little bit of that is irrational because... It is. You know, she, even in her interaction with Sansa and talking about that note that Sansa wrote in King's Landing, she said, oh, you're scared that John's going to read it. Oh, you, you wouldn't be concerned about that. That's not John. He wouldn't be upset about that. That is that is Arya understanding John's nature, which is that Fair he's a so. loving, caring person, and he's always going to accept Arya for what she is. No question. Um, uh, but I think she's just being a little self-conscious because you know she's very different than the last time they met. Mm-hmm. Um, John shows off Longclaw. That's a very stark thing to do when you get reunited, right? Just show off each other's swords. Um, <laughs> John, John says he needs help with Sansa. Uh, says Sansa thinks she's smarter than everyone. I think here is where John still thinks Arya is younger than she really is. Yeah. Yeah, because Arya has a response. Arya really directly confronts John at these points, very politely, very much trying to just, you know, build his point of view rather than even necessarily change it. But she hammers home that she is. She is the smartest person I've ever met. And what she's doing is defending our family, and you need to understand that. And I don't think she's wrong. Arya's taking a very... She's wrong that she's the smartest person she's ever met. I, that she, what she's that from that Sansa believes what she's doing isn't isn't a defensive family. That's more what I meant. That she's the smartest person she's ever met. Maybe Arya, I think, believes that. I don't think it's necessarily true, but I do agree that Sansa is very smart and very capable. I think she's just become way too aware of it. Oh, Arya, how you forget? Do you really think Sansa is smarter than Jacqueline Agar? I don't think. Hmm. No, that's the answer to that is no. Arya is just being hyperbolic here. Um, and she's proving a point. She's trying to tell John, "Look, I'm, you're, I'm, I'm with, I'm with Sansa here." Um, John and Arya hug. John says, uh, "You know, he's part of the family. You know, if Sansa's trying to protect the family. He's part of the family." Um, and uh, Arya says, "Don't forget that." Stark theme plays. Shout out Raymond Waldy. I think the score here was really, really good this episode. Mm-hmm. And it's a very emotional. It's a very heartfelt scene. It's one I've been looking forward to for. I mean, literally, the last time they saw each other was like early season one. It has been that long, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's like the second or third episode. Um, you know, and Arya here, in her reuniting with John, pushes back on him mm-hmm. um, a lot. And I never in a million years would have guessed that she would do that. I thought it would just be a full-out love fest. And I got to tell you, man, 
if there's something that we learn in this episode, or, or we relearn and is reinforced, Starks don't like Targaryens. I mean, <laughs> John, John, John cozying up to a Targaryen, it's like the whole family's kind of bristling. It, they are, though Arya's doing it in a much more productive manner, and where she's just trying, she's not... She's not trying to undermine Job. She's not even she's not even necessarily criticizing him or whatever else. She's just trying to give him perspective on how other people think and how he needs to have a view of what these other concerns are. That's a good thing for John to hear. I think he takes it, and I think it's coming from a place clearly of love rather than righteous challenge or something. I just didn't like that she says Sansa's the smartest person. <laughs> Sansa thinks she's the smartest person. Well, she doesn't need Arya telling her that. Yeah, well, right, anything else for this scene? Oh, uh, what do you, do you do? You think they just forgot about uh, Arya's Valerian dagger, or you felt like that she just didn't think it would felt the need to show it in this particular moment? Uh, I think that the scene would have gone on too long. Yeah, think about that. It's like I show you this sword, this sword, this dagger. You know, it starts to go, like you know, she probably would have if we were just being realistic. But I, I think they just wanted to do like a sort of cute. Oh, you still have needle. Oh, look, I've got long claw. But now let's get to business. Apparently, uh, I read this somewhere. This scene was largely unscripted. The director just kind of put the two put, put the two actors in the scene and just said, "Okay, play it out how you think you would if you had just miss, just met each other once again." Yeah, and I read that they did that a lot, and they would do it like twenty or thirty times. Like they they really exhausted these actors uh, for this for this uh, uh, this season. I mean, they they would literally like, "Okay, let's do twenty or thirty improv takes and let's see if one lands." Good lord. That's just exhausting to even hear about. Yeah. All right, we cut to King's Landing. Cersei is standing, looking out into the ocean. Kyburn comes up and says, very bad news, Your Grace. The dead have broken through the wall. Cersei smugly says, good. Um, <laughs> yeah. I got to tell you, hand up, Spencer. I'm not at all worried about our bet. I mean, that, that doesn't scare me at all. I mean, you know, the fact that she now has the Golden Company within 20 minutes of the episode, and she's happy that the dead have broken through because she wants the dead to... Decimate Danny's army because then she'd be in a better position to be. I'm not worried about her bet at all. Not even a little bit. I, I'm, I'm not saying I'm counting my money. I'm just saying that, you know, there were some words and there were some sayings and there were some presentations that made me somewhat more secure in my 10 to 1 bet. I don't know where those things come from, really. No. Totally not worried. Just not worried at all. Not not even a little bit worried. Uh, not worried. Um, the Iron Fleet with the Golden Company arriving. Euron is presumably on the silence and he goes to Yara. Euron's drinking and he says he's bored. <laughs> Killer. Uh, he's got a crew, a crew full of mutes, um, which, you know, he did that, but point taken. I mean, if they, they can't talk, it's bad company. Yara, who, <coughs> you're never going to break Yara. I mean, she is iron. No, not she at her. tough. And she just said, just looks at him. And to anyone else, this would be cutting. Says you picked the losing side. Euron just says, he gets in her face and says, well, I'll take the Iron Fleet somewhere else. He doesn't care. He just wants to sleep with the Queen. Yeah. And it's like, you start to wonder, is this just a vanity project? Is Euron just doing this to sleep with Cersei and then just leave? I think that's kind of what he's suggesting here, is that my goal is sleeping with the Queen. Everything else, everybody else that dies, every other aspect of this war and the carnage that results from it, incidental. My goal is this. This is what I have to do to get that. Once I've accomplished that, I'm good. God, that's hilarious. If he, if the whole thing, like, how great would it be in episode four if Cersei's like, okay, you know, Danny and John's army's on the march, let's fight, and Euron goes, oh no, I just wanted to sleep with you. I'm gonna leave. <laughs> we've, we've slept together now. There's no more relationship here. <laughs> oh, uh, Harry Strickland and Your Honor in the throne room. Um, we get the number. The Golden Company has twenty thousand men. Um, 
Interesting how the room is empty. Um, Utterly. I took that. I took that as a kind of fitting, a little bit of an illustration of where Cersei's at in her both her life and her ruling. Very much so. I mean, it, they very much are emphasizing a lonely at the top kind of image with Cersei of where she's truly accomplished everything that she set out to do. She is queen of the Seven Kingdoms, but it is hollow. It is truly her sitting on the throne. The image that they depicted of a room in shadow with nothing other than her military guard around her and the room otherwise empty is perfect for emphasizing where she is right now. Uh, Harry Strickland says that Euron killed a few minutes, few of his men at sea. Now this is a, this is a, he seems annoyed by this, and he should. These are not Euron's men to kill. No. These are these are the, this is the Golden Company, and they're hired. They're basically contractors. Euron doesn't have the right to kill them. Uh, Nonplus though, Euron. He goes, they were cheating at dice. Maybe I was cheating. I was cheating. <laughs> Euron is a loon, man. He is nuts. Yeah, yeah. It it just plays out more and more as this episode goes along. That he is... I, I wonder... I assume that Cersei is aware of how unreliable a thing that she has invested so much of the basis of her power in right now. I think she does. Um, Cersei asks about the elephants, which I think is funny. She asks a couple times. Uh, I think this is part of the, the fandom, right? Because we oh, yeah. know from the books that Golden Company has elephants. We're all hoping there's elephants. But Cersei, did you really think elephants could ride over on a wooden ship from Essos? You know, in the books, they do. In the books, yeah, that's, the... that's just crazy. That is, that's not a thing. It, I mean, it could be a thing. I mean, they built giant cogs. That is what George R. R. Martin said. We can trust him that such vessels could potentially exist. Right? Uh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Euron then makes a point that he wants a little alone time. She says, after the war's won, that's our deal. Cersei drops this line. Now, you're not on social media, Spencer. You are, you're, a, you're an analog man. You're, Very you're, much you're so. pencil and paper. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you what happened after this line. Um, Cersei drops the line, you want a whore, buy one. You want a queen, earn her. Like every woman, like everywhere, not every woman, but a lot of women immediately posted this to like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Like this is the new quote, right? You want a whore, buy one. You want a queen, earn her. And they posted it immediately. Now that's a little unfortunate because of the events that go on next. <laughs> it, it is a good line. It is an empowering line. It is immediately undercut by what she then feels obliged to do three minutes later. Yeah. So she says this line, it's super empowering. Everybody fires it off. And then Euron says, well, how? Giving you justice, an army, and the Iron Fleet. My heart is nearly broken. (laughs) She says, you're insolent. I've executed men for less. Hey, well, that's our men. So she walks out. You can see on her face when he says how. She goes, oh, shit. Like, I mean, she really is relying on him. Yeah, uh, she has to keep him happy, uh, and he has given her a lot, and she is in a very good position now. Again, not worried about my bet, not worried at all, um, because of him, and she doesn't want to alienate him. Um, so she walks out, stops, turns, and looks. And it's an indication that Euron can follow her. I'd like to point out some comments from the actress Lena Headley, who plays Cersei. Uh, mm-hmm. If you've heard these comments about this scene, I've not. Uh, Lena Headley said she went round and round with the, the, uh, Dan and Dave about this. That she was utterly convinced that Cersei would not do this. That Cersei would not sleep with Euron in this moment. And Dan and Dave overrode her over and over again. And and she had to film the scene this way. But she pushed back hard thinking that Cersei would not do this. It's not in her character. Spencer, what say you? 
Uh, I mean, it could be a difference between book and show Cersei here. Uh, book Cersei is very much willing to use Femina Wilds, whether she's comfortable with it or not, to advance or maintain or protect her position. It is something she does frequently with people who are far less important to her than Euron. It is an aspect of her character. Um, I think in the show, uh, which I think maybe Cersei's coming more from, that they've placed her in a position of power, a position of authority, where she may not feel it is as necessary to do that anymore. But we know even on the show, it's something that she's done in the past, even with respect to her cousin, Lancel, back in the day. So I'm I'm kind of with D&D here, that it is definitely an established aspect of her character, but I respect Cersei's, uh, well, Alina Headley's position, that it may be something that Cersei's either grown beyond or no longer feels is necessary. Yeah, and I just don't think you give her, like, the, the crazy, like, woman-empowering quote. And then have her just like fold, like a second later. I think that's if you, if you're going to use that line, you want a whore by one, you want a queen earn her. She needs to hold the line. Otherwise, don't drop that line. I mean, it's perhaps the case, but it is recognizing that her position, as powerful as it is, is still tenuous. I mean, the people that she has essentially supporting her rule are a badly damaged Lannister army, a collection of seven kingdoms that are only loyal to her as a result of being devastated and military force a new mercenary company who has primarily existed to undermine the basis of the rulers of Westeros in the past, and Euron, who really is only here because he wants to sleep with you and is directly threatening that unless he has some show of affection, he's just going to walk. It's not, it's a powerful position, but it's one built on quicksand. Yeah, whereas Danny's has a much stronger foundation. Oh, yeah. Uh, then we cut to Braun. He's in a brothel, and the workers, as I call them on this episode, uh, this, this podcast, because I am not—I don't work blue like you. They're talking about the dragon, and it shows. I like this though because it shows that the common folk are really affected by the return of dragons, and I—I I think that's totally realistic. I think that once Field of Fire 2.0 happened, King's Landing would just be, and only thing anybody are talking about is the dragons. I personally think it reflects that the quality of services have gone down dramatically since Littlefinger left King's Landing. I mean, this is a level of poor service that would not have existed in any establishment run by that run by Littlefinger in the past. And you would know. I mean, you're you're a real uh, market expert. Uh, oh come in this, on! In, in any this, uh... in, in any in any terms of service of any particular thing, you'd want the person that you have contracted for the service to at least provide a certain degree of focus on you, rather than providing pillow talk talking about disfigured other Johns. It's not necessarily the best atmosphere you want to paint for the moment. That's right, Spencer. Yeah, all that experience you have. I mean, it's good that you're able to uh, bring that to bear and give a little feedback. Um, so Bron says, uh, Bron's like, hey, look, I, he tries to cut it and be like, you know what, I've shot a dragon. And he did. He shot a dragon. He said, nearly killed it. No, you didn't, Bron. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> he didn't step too far. They did not really kill it. Uh, it was not close to killing it. Um, Kyburn walks in. Um, he snuck up on Bron, much the same way Arya snuck up on Jon. Like, we're seeing that a lot this episode. Like People just kind of, well, why are you there? Uh, Bron just says, are you fucking kidding me? Um, and one of the girls as she's walking out <laughs> looks at Kyburn and says, you ever get lonely? I am partial to older men. Kyburn with an all-time line. I, this might be line of the episode. I know this would be a very selfish line of the episode for me because it's just funny. Mm. Poor girl. The pucks will have her before the year. <laughs> and Bron about chokes on his wife. Uh, which girl? <laughs> I, I love Bron's reaction there, too. Um, but it, it, it's an interesting little scene because, you know, Kyburn is showing up to basically deliver the wishes of the queen that, okay, my brothers have kind of screwed you over in the past. You haven't really gotten what this promised. But 
I pay my debts. Quiburn is here in some ways to represent how much I pay my debts. And I need you to fulfill the ultimate protection of my realm by assassinating my two wayward treasonous brothers with Joffrey's friggin' crossbow. That is, as Quiburn says, poetic in a way that only Cersei can be. To which Bronn responds, that fucking family. Yeah. Looking for all of the fandom there. Thank you, Bronn. Very um, much so. Do you think Bronn's going to go through with this? He's going to go north to try to kill uh, Jamie and Tyrion? I think he'll go north because I think he's just now seen the writing on the wall that unless he at least represents he's doing this, Cersei will have his head. But I don't think he's going to go through with it. I yeah. don't think. I don't think he reasonably trusts Cersei. I enjoy that. For how much we've seen previously that Cersei interacts with her own people, that as a result of production reasons we've discussed previously on this show, you're not going to see Cersei show up to tell Bronn this personally or call Bronn to tell her per- see her personally. Yeah. So here, you want to know how Cersei fucked up here? Mm-hmm. She paid in advance. <laughs> Bronn's going to take that money, he's going to go north, and he's going to be like, hey, guess what your sister did? <laughs> yeah. She, she paid me to kill you. Uh, anyway, what are you guys doing up here? <laughs> that I think that's exactly how it's going to play out. I see no scenario where why Bron, where Bronn would do this, because I think his loyalties lie with the two Lannister brothers anyway. But I also think that Bronn, in a way that apparently Tyrion isn't, knows enough that he cannot trust Cersei long term. Yeah, and, and what, what, he is a sellsword. What is his financial incentive to actually carry through with this? Nothing. She paid in advance. Well, it's she happened. She has suggested promising that there'll be more to come, that there will be lands and the titles and everything he was promised before. But, yeah, but you know, he doesn't think she's going to win the war. Yeah. He saw the Field of Fire 2.0. That, if, he yeah. wants, if he wants a place to, if he wants a castle that is actually he's going to be able to keep, he needs to get up with Danny at some point. Yeah, that, that's a promise of a castle with no foundation to keep it up with. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am not worried in any way that Bronn is going to go off on a mission of murder. I think well, I, I think he's going to go off on a mission of murder. I just don't think he'll do it. No, I think we're going to. He, we'll see him next episode in the north, probably. Um, you know, after they deal with Jamie, um, and I think he'll end up fighting in the battle. Um, all right, we cut to Cersei. She just uh, her and Euron just uh, got done getting to know each other, mm-hmm. uh, and she's drinking a glass of wine and says, "Wanted those elephants." <laughs> Speaking for the fandom once again. <laughs> Euron wants to know how he compares, which is pretty funny. He starts with the fat king, and obviously, you do not need to be slandering the King Bobby B. Euron. You are a quarter of the man King Bobby B. was. If he was here right now, he would, he would sack you up, hit you with his warhammer, and, and take your fleet. In weight, um, in weight alone, if nothing else. Uh, but obviously, uh, Cersei then goes on and, and, and casts shade at King Bobby B. Says he you know, had a different whore every night, but doesn't know his way around a woman's body. And then, ooh, you're on really playing with fire here. He says, in the Kingslayer, and she shoots him a real, one of those classic Lena Headley, like, you shut your mouth books that, ooh, just puts ice through your veins. Uh, and she says, you enjoy risking your neck, don't you? He says, life is boring. You're not boring, I'll give you that. So they're doing a little flirting here. They're kind of going back and forth. Uh, but I will tell you this. These two have the chemistry, the actual actors have the chemistry of Kit Harrington and Amelia Clark. Um... Which is just about the chemistry that like two potatoes have sitting next to each other. <laughs> what, which, which way you were going to go with that? Awful. Yeah. I don't believe it, these actors. I mean, I don't know if they're just, it's the last season and they're just not going to waste time connecting. But I have, that, look, these are all good actors. But yeah. when they're trying to do the interaction between, the playful interaction between Cersei and Euron, ugh. 
And anytime John and Danny are showing affection to each other, I'm like, these these two actors, it's like they both have bad breath or something. Like, mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't want to be near each yeah. other. This I, is I, not convincing. I think it works better here because I don't think we're meant to believe that it's convincing. I think that when Cersei, you know, vaguely expresses admiration that he's not boring and that she appreciates his arrogance, I don't think we're meant to see, see it as sincere. <laughs> Um, yeah, but even yeah, I, I I see what you're saying. But even you're like how Euron's treating her. It just yeah, I don't know. I I don't. But I, I, don't, I feel he, like these two uh, actors were put in a room together, and they 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 just didn't have a lot of time together to act previously. I, again, I tolerate it more because I don't think she likes him whatsoever, and that he is a swarm a swarmy vile prick. But my, I think my favorite part about the scene is the look on Cersei's face as he leaves. Yeah, uh, he says, "I'm going to put a prince in your belly," and she seems uncomfortable. She even tears up. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think. I, well, I think it's a very again lonely at the top moment that this is the closest thing I have to some emotional connection right now. This is the closest thing I have to someone that actually desires me. That I've lost everything previously. I've abandoned or gotten rid of everything previously to rise where I am, and this is what I'm left with. Again, I think it's a tying into the, just the loneliness of her position. I also. Again, I'm really much reading in the idea that her, her comments are not very sincere. We talked about that Cersei's position is a little bit at risk based on having to rely on Euron, but Euron is a person who's really overplaying his hand with Cersei too. Um, I I do not picture Euron surviving for even a half second if Cersei at any point does not feel that she needs him anymore. Uh, yeah, dude, I agree. Uh, I don't I don't like um, Euron's chances. Uh, he's one of the, the folks I'm, I'm fairly certain is going to die um, sooner rather than later. Um, it's more just a question so we, of who will do him in, I think, before the end. We've got options. And then back at Euron's ship, the silence, uh, SEAL Team Reek breaks in. Um, <laughs> I mean, whoa, man. When, when, <laughs> when did Theon get these skills? Uh, they come in. Uh, we're all business. And break out Yara. Yara, once she gets freed of her chains, headbutts Theon. I guess we're jumping off the uh, the the bridge when she was captured by Euron. But it's kind of like, well, Yara, I mean, wouldn't be rescuing you now if he didn't do that. So I don't, I don't know about that move. Yeah, it, it, I think we've discovered the ultimate weakness, <laughs> uh, the ultimate uh, trick to defeat the Iron uh, the Iron Fleet or any really great uh, Greyjoy forces. Wait until it is somewhat dark. Because apparently they don't really believe in, like, you know, guards or scouts or anybody really monitoring the situation to determine whether someone's going to sneak up on you in the middle of the night. Yeah, well, they walk off and the Greyjoy music starts playing. Uh, Back on Yara's ship, Yara says she's going to take the uh, Iron Islands back because Euron's not there to protect them. Uh, She makes the point that Danny will need a place to go if she can't hold the north. I feel like that's a little foreshadowing. Yeah, and we, they've discussed previously that the show has made very abundantly clear that the dead, or at least the zombies, can't cross water, or at least don't cross water, or at least haven't crossed water yet. Except uh, for the ones that went down and put the chains on Viserion. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they didn't really show that, did they? I kind of forgot about that point. They at least don't seem to enjoy water, or at least they're not commanded to cross water. And previously, Euron himself said, you know, I'm going to go back to the Iron Isles, they don't cross water. So I, this is definitely something the show has brought up before, and yeah, it could very much be foreshadowing that if they lose the Battle of Winterfell, that the Iron Isles may be the first place they go. I feel it is a little bit overambitious on uh, Yara's part to think that she can take all of the Iron Isles with three ships and like 40 guys, but you know, good luck, dear. Well, there's probably a lot of common folk there who still like her. Possibly. So uh, she probably only has to fight what little force... Um... Euron has left, and Euron probably didn't leave much because he didn't think that Yara would be a 
the problem. She's still got like five guys to occupy each of the Iron Isles. It's not going to be an easy mission necessarily, but as said, if she's going to do it, now is probably the best time. Yeah, I think she'll be able to do it. Um, back on, uh, back in what, no, and then, um, and I love this mo moment, right? Because Yara can tell that Theon wants to go help the Starks. Yeah. And she frees him to do so, and she doesn't do it in a way that it seems like there's any animosity. And I, as I was listening to this scene, watching this scene, I just kept going back to John's quote to Theon in season seven: "You're a Greyjoy, and you're a Stark." And mm -hmm. This is he. He was just a Greyjoy. He went and saved his sister, and now he's allowed to go be a Stark. He's allowed to go fight for Winterfell. Yeah, and it's a very meaningful moment because it's just an understanding between two characters that he says that he's going to follow her, but she looks right into his face and knows that that's not where his heart is. That's not where his loyalty lies anymore. This is not what he needs to go do to complete his arc, to complete his final embracing of his true character. And that she lets him go, that she gives him a hug, and that she does a little spin on the, on the Greyjoy saying is just a wonderful exit to the characters. I... I Unless they do indeed retreat to the Iron Isles, I fully suspect we will not see Yara again on the show, and I think it's a fitting exit to her character. I think that we're going to see. I think Danny, Danny, maybe not John, but Danny is going to retreat um, and going to go to the uh, <clears throat> going to go to the Iron Islands, and then we'll see Yara again. So let's cut to Winterfell, where Tyrion, Varys, and Davos are walking around, and the Karstarks come in. So Lady Karstark. Holding up her side of the uh, the agreement, which is very very interesting when you know when you've read the books and you hear all of the history between the Karstarks and the Starks, that in this very pivotal moment, the Karstarks show up. It, they do, and it's in some ways in some ways keeping with one of the main female characters, uh, Karstark characters we get in the books, Alizan Karstark, who shows specific loyalty to John, or at least is willing to work with John to try to establish re, re control over her house and ensure the loyalty of her reconstituted Karstark house to John and potentially Stannis. So I think they're tying into that. Um, but it is immediately a point that uh, Davos looks at this and says, hey, my man did this. My man brokered this. He ended a tension that resulted in deaths and execution and straight-up betrayal, and now is a loyal follower who crossed half a continent to be here to fight the friggin' dead. Let's think about what this means and how this could help you. Yeah, I know, and Tyrion just... He blows it off. He tries to. He tries yeah. to. Yeah, our queen is grateful. He doesn't want to talk about it. Um, anyway, Davos then has a great quote. Um, I think this is potential line of the episode here. Very much so. Uh, he's talking to Tyrion. He's trying to drive home the point that you just made. He says, The Northmen are loyal to Jon Snow, not to her. They don't know her. The free folk don't know her. I've been up here a while, I'm telling you. They're stubborn as goats. You want their loyalty, you have to earn it. Mm -hmm. Great line. I've been up here a while and I'm telling you they're stubborn as goats. <laughs> that is the through line of this episode that the Northerners, the Northerners are stuck in their ways. You have to earn their trust and they're stubborn as goats. And, and it brokers into a wonderful line too of where, you know, Tyrion basically just reads him and says, okay, what are you proposing? And Davos says, is what I'm proposing. It's a great line himself. <laughs> but on the off chance that we survive the Night King, what if the Seven Kingdoms for once in their whole shit history were, were ruled by a just woman and an honorable man? And... I think that's a rosy picture that the show is giving us a red herring with. It makes for a great line and negotiating point for Davos, but I don't, I either don't believe or don't want to believe for a second that that's, that, that's the, uh, the future that we can look forward to in, the, in terms of this oh, world. Oh yeah. We covered that on the predictions podcast. That would be just awful if that ended up being the way that this went. Um, yeah. Yeah. Not good at all. Um, so uh, we cut to, um, 
uh, yeah, so anyway, Tyrion asked for a proposal. Davos said uh, proposals what I'm proposing. And Varys says he doesn't think they have the power to actually push that. Um, and at, at some point they say that um, Danny respects her elders. Um, and then there's this great, great quote from Varys. Of course she does. Respect is how the young keep us at a distance, so we don't remind them of an unpleasant truth. What truth is that? Nothing last. Great line. Very Varys uh, worthy line right there. Um and it uh, immediately cuts then to the burdening, the blooming relationship between John and Danny, or as you described, two flowering potatoes. Yep, two potatoes sitting next to each other here. This is the chemistry that we've got between these two actors, but this is what we're stuck with. It's season eight. Danny and John are walking through camp talking, and Danny doesn't like that Sansa doesn't like her. This gets back to your point earlier, where Danny is willing to show you love, but if you don't immediately reciprocate, she gets pretty fired up. Um, she gets high and mighty about being her queen, which I don't like when Danny does this. She's this sort of weird trump card. Like, well, she doesn't have to like me, but I am her queen. It's like, eh. you don't know the Northerners. You can't just heavy-handedly beat them with your title and expect them to respect you. It's not going to happen. Um, but while they're having this conversation, a couple of the Dothraki ride in. And in Dothraki, they explain, um, they get, they say that the total is, what, 18 goats and 11 sheep. And Danny, Danny explains to John that the dragons aren't eating. So Danny uh, and John go to see them, and they show up. They walk up. Danny gets on Drogon and says, "Go ahead, get up on Rhaegal." <laughs> Spencer, yeah, Spencer, yeah, Spencer, yeah. It's like it's uh, it's like you got a Tesla. Yeah, it. it and you're like, yeah, Terry, go take a spin. Yeah. A dragon is not a horse. It's not a tamed animal. It's certainly in some automaton that will just let anybody get aboard and go for a ride. That's not how this works. This is an intelligent, finicky little cre- finicky creature that chooses its riders, and if it does not choose you, over an extended kind of grooming process, you die. Yeah. The fact that this they, was such a weird scene, how they they went for like rom com with John riding Rhaegal, when in reality it's like one of the mo- more momentous things that's ever happened in the series. Oh yeah, it, it, John is able to do this. Now they do they do at least frame it right, where you can see Rhaegal bending down to let John onto him. So it's not like John just kind of you know walked up and just hopped on it. I mean Rhaegal was giving the signs that he wanted john to ride him so maybe that's where danny was coming from but i would think her tone would be a little bit more somber if for no other reason than spencer i think danny just accidentally lost a dragon i think she just (laughs) i think she just like in about 15 seconds just lost a dragon because now john is connected to the dragon she's he's the rider yeah that's his dragon now one thing one way to look at this is that danny does not have the uh, you know long histories and write-ups and guides that targaryens had about dragon riding she presumably knows only what she learned from her brother uh in his stories that he told her when they were little kids so she, what she knows about this process is just what she's learned herself so she may not get a few of these rules or understand them yet she may not understand it. the colossal implications of a dragon letting John ride in the first place. That that's basically just flashing neon lights over John's head saying, Targaryen here, blood of Valeria, look here. Because that's just and the also, only... Danny, Danny now has one dragon. Like, can we talk about that? Oh, yeah. Like, well, when, go into that, too. Yeah, this is, now, like, this is how this works. When, a, when a, a dragon allows a rider 
that rider is the rider for life. Yeah. And that's who they're connected with. And that dra- dragon is not a slave, right? They're not really owned by anybody, but that dragon, Rhaegal, was connected to Danny before. Yeah. Danny could command it. I don't believe she's going to be able to do that anymore. I think she has lost that dragon. It's right. I don't think she even knows that, but like she's gone from three dragons to one pretty quickly. And now John, I don't think he knows this either, has a dragon. And I think you're going to find this out uh, probably during the battle of, of episode uh, in episode three, the battle of Winterfell, where Rhaegal is going to be loyal to John. I mean, if there's any consistency at all with the books, he will, John will be riding Rhaegal. And if John is fighting on foot, Rhaegal will be watching him. Yeah, the moment we talked about before, back in like the Dance of Dragons in the books, of where uh, the son of a queen tries to ride his mother's dragon because the uh, the assault on the dragon pit has occurred. He needs to get there to save the other dragons from this murderous army of of uh, peasants. And the he gets on the dragon. He gets up to you know flying over the red keep to get down to the dragon pit, and the dragon just chucks him because it's not loyal to him. There's no family bond here. There's no family car you can just take out for a spin. A dragon only lets its set bound rider do this. It's a miracle alone that John did not die in this process and that Danny was so casual about it in the first place. But now that it's happened, John has a dragon. Danny does not. Yeah. Danny, and if, it, again, if it's at all consistent, if Danny ever tried to ride Rhaegal, he'd toss her off. Now, he has a drag, He has a rider now. It's John. You're right. It should, Danny should take a hint there that he's Targaryen. I do think that when she hears that he is the son of Rhaegar and Lyanna Stark. It's going to make Rhaegar sense. Rhaegar and Lyanna Stark. I think she's going to, it's going to click for her. I do think she's going to believe it. Now, even if Danny um, doesn't know about, you know, that truly only people of, of Valerian or specifically Targaryen blood can ride these dragons, we saw Varys and Tyrion and Davos, but Davos probably doesn't know, look at this and see Jon flying over. They're both well-educated men who know a lot about dragons. Even well, if Danny well, doesn't that's not get... true, though. That's not true. They, they, uh, Non-Valerians have ridden dragons. I mean, the main example there is the dragon seats, but they were specifically, you know, couched in the idea that they had, they were Targaryen bastards and they had Targaryen blood in them. Um, previously, we've talked about people who weren't Valerians tried to. I don't know if you've ever had a clear demonstration of success, that even people that were iffy were still written off as being dragon seats, at least the primary people. So even if it isn't necessarily 100% always true, it is a very common belief, and a very and it has a lot of history to back it up in a way that I think Varys and Tyrion would recognize, and that may come up once um, that uh, Sam and John come forward in the next episode. They'll say, "Oh right, you're riding a dragon." That ties in here. No, I do. I think the reason that they staged it this way, they had John ride the dragon before he is told about his ancestry, mm-hmm. is so that when he and it's probably not going to be him. It's probably going to be Sam because we'll get to it. But Sam is on yeah. a fucking mission at the end of this episode. For a reason. He, he lets it fly to everybody. I think that everyone is going to go, oh, yeah. Right. Like, I, do th- I think you're right. I think Varys and probably Tyrion will speak up and say, he was riding a dragon. And what do we know about Tyrion? He was ex- obsessed with dragons when he was a kid. He studied them. Very much years. so. Very much so. So he's going to know this nugget. So I mean, this gives them the uh, amount of you know physical dem- demonstrable evidence in a way they did not lack. They lacked before. A journal that Sam is claiming is authentic and the visions of Bran aren't necessarily that great by themselves. Seeing him ride a dragon over Winterfell in a way everyone observed, that has a, a, a ring to it in a way that these other stories don't. Agreed. Well, let's go through the scene itself. John struggles to ride it. They're going for comedy there, which I don't like. Um, but I will say that this is one of the most beautiful oh. scenes that they have ever constructed with the CGI dragons. Um they flying around, and it's a new score from Raymond Dwally, yeah. um, which I really liked. 
Uh, it was gorgeous. Um, and then John lands near a waterfall. John's got a thing for waterfalls. Yeah, there's a there's some direct comparisons in this scene between him and Ygritte. <laughs> we could stay a thousand years. Yes, I want the yes. Of this cave, John Snow. Yep. It, they're, they're directly, clearly hearkening back to that in terms of the same natural hot spring waterfall, the same friggin' line from Danny. It, they very much want to tie these two relationships together, or at least how important this relationship is to John now, whether we necessarily find that believable or not. Yeah, the unfortunate thing for the writers is that um, Kit Harrington and Rose Leslie had so much chemistry, they ended up getting married. And Kit Harrington and Amelia Clark seems like they're ready to get to lunch. I think it's. I wonder whether part of the awkwardness may be that Rosa Leslie and Amelia Clark are best friends, and so that might that might make for some you know awkward talk going forward if you have to go home to your wife each night and talk about how you made out with her best friend. Oh, I mean, or what about that that boat sex scene? I mean, they were having to. Yeah. That stuff. Um, so, this is another line from Danny I really don't like. John says it's cold up here for a southern girl, and she says, "So keep your queen warm." Again, I am your queen. Mm-hmm. Hammering the queen thing home pretty hard. Then they do this like scene where Drogon doesn't like John kissing Danny, and uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, is, is it not like I didn't detect much hostility? I detected very active interest. I mean, it seemed like that you know they were in some ways paying as much active as much or not more active attention to John in this moment than they were Danny. So, no, the, no. The last scene, rewatch it because the last scene with Drogon, he does that little, like, angry huff. <laughs> Assumption. That's what, going, that's what they're going for, Spencer. They're so going for dumb comedy. That's what that scene was. It was oh, I don't like you kissing my mom. <laughs> Lol. It's fucking lame. You can try to make it interesting if you'd like, but that's what they were doing. Fine, fine. Let's go on to Gen- Let's go on to Gendry and Arya. That's more interesting. Yeah. Um, so, Gendry's forging weapons, and the Hound walks in. Gendry gives him an axe he forged out of Dragonglass and brags on himself a little bit. Apparently, Gendry is like a really, really good uh, smith, which makes me wonder, is he going to be able to forge Valerian steel by the end of this series? I don't know, but maybe. Um, Hound calls him out for bragging on himself, which I really like. You, you don't want to brag on yourself in front of the Hound. He's, no. he's sort of no. like, He calls you on your bullshit. Uh, he starts to razz him a little bit, and Arya walks in and says, leave him be. Uh, this is the the number one reuniting scene that I was excited for in our predictions podcast. I remember. I remember. Did you get what you wanted? No. Oh, it's going to be a hard no. <laughs> <laughs> there was not a really much warmth at all. Yeah, um, there was a little bit from the hound, but man, not what I was expecting. Yeah, it. it my I my turn to Bridget after we watched the scene. My ultimate conclusion of it was, well, they seem to have a mutual respect for each other's viciousness. That's what I got out of this scene. There was no warmth. There was no, you know, father-daughter. There was, we are both hyper-lethal, and we are aware and appreciative of that. It's like, okay, that's a kind of relationship, not necessarily the most healthy one, but probably about the best the two can summon, given where they've ended up in life. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, Arya says, leave him be, and the hound says, I heard you were here. You left me to die. Arya says, first I robbed you. Yeah, that's a that's a good line. That is a good line. And he walks up and just says, "You're a cold little bitch, aren't you?" Guess that's why you're still alive. The hound leaves. So that's that's the reuniting uh, between these two characters. Uh, it left a lot to be desired for me, and I think that's because I read too much into the characters. I thought they were they would be warmer to each. Other. I thought Arya would be a little bit warmer to him, but I think. Nah. I mean, I think they both come too far at this point to really show much in the way of warmth. Clearly, he cares for her. We talked about that in season six of his. Asking about asking with Brienne, almost the mother-father interaction, the, the laughs they shared about Arya, that he clearly cares. 
But in terms of meeting each other in this moment with what they're bringing to bear, with what each of them stands for in terms of their just self-worth associated with their dangerousness, I feel like they couldn't in this public place show that kind of warmth. I feel like in some ways they would deem it weak in terms of interacting with each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, clearly you're right. Um, so then, Arya, get, let's get down to the good stuff. Arya's talking to Gendry. Mm-hmm. She says, that was a nice axe you made for him. You've gotten better. He says, so have you. Uh, 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 I mean, you look good. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy, Spencer, it's happening. They are flirting up a storm before this scene is done. <laughs> they really are. Um, he calls her my lady. She says, don't call me that. He says, as you wish, my lady. Nice call back to season three. And she can't help but laugh and smile and break and, and cut up a little bit. I know, look at that, Sansa. Someone's smiling. <laughs> God, man, you are down on Sansa this episode. Yeah, she's just, she knows she is. She's somewhere muttering that she's smarter than everybody. Arya is asking for some weird special weapon she's designed, like some sort of like harpoon it, thing. I, I'll offer a theory potentially on book nerd bitching, but I think it might be a spear thrower. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I think Gendry can make it. Gendry, uh, she, she shows Gendry his, her dagger. Uh, he says, Valerian steel. I knew you were a rich girl. And she says, you don't know any other rich girls. I like and she walks away. And this, this is just a little um, insight into my mind. Here, Arya is breaking a social norm that makes me crazy. Do not walk backwards in a crowded room. Particularly in a, for, in a blacksmith's forge where friggin' molten metal is flying around the room. But, you know. I, I get that you're flirting. But I have seen many, many, and it's usually girls like to do this move. I've seen many, many girls think they're being cute and flirting and then just back right into somebody. <laughs> Didn't play out this way. You know, Arya, with her hypersensitive awareness, wouldn't have happened. She was good. She was fine. Yeah, uh, she's got the, the Jedi senses. <laughs> but it's a cute scene. I mean, this is, an inter- this is a... I didn't necessarily put much or hope into what their reunion would be. And I'm glad it played out like that, you know, she's tense with John. She wants to rebuild the relationship. She's worried about it. The two of them get back together, and they are straight season three again. And it's 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 nice to see that, that Arya, throughout this episode, is able to default back to these close, warm relationships with people that knew her before she ended up where she currently is. Yeah, um, and we really didn't know if she was going to be able to do that. We, were, we, we, we seriously questioned that for like three or four seasons. I, I, I'm glad to see it. It, it, shows a, it shows a completeness to her character that I was worried they were going to cut. Yep, I agree. Um, well, then John goes to visit Sansa. This scene pisses me off in a couple ways. Sansa explains that Lord Glover isn't coming, and John says, House Glover will stand behind House Stark as we have for a thousand years. I believe that's what he said. Sansa fires back, I will stand behind Jon Snow, the king in the north. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sansa taking up for Lord Glover a little bit here, which I think is ridiculous, because Lord Glover has been a turncoat every step of the way. Yeah, which pisses me off. The north remembers means a lot to me. It is really a powerful, powerful theme in terms of the books, and the show just does not believe in it at fucking all. And Glover is just the poster boy of that just utter constant fair-weather fan mentality that they put into the Northern Lords. Or at least... Bloody, bloody wind veins, I think is what Sansa calls it. That was a great line by her back last season. It was. Yeah. Um, so basically, they start arguing about John giving up his crown. Mm-hmm. And finally, John just looks at her and goes, do you think we can beat the army of the dead without her? Yeah. yeah. You want to worry about who holds what title? I'm telling you, it doesn't matter. And John asks uh, if Sansa has any faith in him at all. And she says yes, and here I think John goes a step too far in this conversation. He tries to defend him. He tries to say she's going to be a good king. Yeah. Or a good queen. But, but, Sansa baits him a little bit. She goes, 
you know, he, he's like, you know, John is saying she's not her father, right? She's not the yeah. Mad King. Sansa says, well, yeah, she's much prettier. And then when John smiles and laughs and looks away, Sansa, John took the bait. Sansa goes in for the kill. Did you bend the knee to save the North or because you love her? Yeah. It's an interesting structured scene because when John presents this about what else could I do? Look what I have done with what I gave up. Sansa, you know, there's no one she's showing off to in this moment. She's just with John, And she essentially has to concede that, yeah, there wasn't shit else you could have done here. You made the good play. You get, you got more than you gave up with respect to this. And she has to concede that she does respect him. She does trust him with respect to this. But as you said, John overplays his hand. He starts going back into where Sansa is in a position of power. He starts he's he is briefly confused from her concession on this point that they are reestablishing a warm sibling relationship that is just not there right now. Because he, you know, tries to open up to her. He's like, you know. She'll be a good queen. She isn't her father. And even reveals for a second that, yeah, I'm attracted to her. I like her. And that is a moment of weakness that Sansa just spears on right away. This is John really overplaying his hand and misreading this moment in the end. And Sansa hitting him with a deep cut point, which rattles John, clearly. It is a question that John needs to ponder to a certain degree, but Sansa's not asking it for that that for not asking it for that reason. I feel no, like she's, she's asking it to cut to him, to, to cut him. And uh, I, I just thought it was a cool thing to do. John doesn't answer because, to your point, I do think that when you ask John a question like that, he's introspective. He doesn't. Yeah. He's not like Sansa. You know, he doesn't like have emotional reaction. He sits and he thinks about it. Now, I do think he gave up the crown to save the North. I think he had to also love her. Um, but I think he would have done it if she looked like, you know, Dolores Ed. Um, but there is a cutaway. We don't see what John's answer is. <laughs> Dolores um, Ed, man. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but anyway, Sansa not being fair to John there. And then you got. Oh my God, Spencer! Oh, this thing. Credit, oh. credit to Bradley with the scene. He he does beautifully with it. It is, it is painful, and it is painful and in a way Bradley that who plays, uh, yeah, John Bradley who plays uh, uh, Sam. He does great in the scene. It ma- it makes it hurt, and it, it's a very well played and important scene because it sets up a lot of Sam's motivations going forward in terms of strongly pushing and supporting John's claim to the throne. Yeah. Well, anyway, Jorah, meaning well, <laughs> uh, is bringing Danny to visit Sam because, you know, Sam cured him of grayscale. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam awkwardly greets her. She says, so you're the man. And he goes, uh, what man is that? Your grace. Such a great Sam mm-hmm. um, response. <clears throat> Danny, in a sort of cringy moment, says, well, when I take the throne, there's going to be some changes in the city. <laughs> and says so she's going to uh, give a reward to Sam. She says, what can I do for you now? And Sam, <laughs> in a hilarious way, asks for a pardon for taking books from the Citadel. Danny and Jorah uh, sort of share a knowing laugh, and he says, also a sword, and she has a sword from the Citadel. She says, not for my family. It's been in House Tarly for generations. Ugh. And then Danny starts, you, the body language, she starts to come down, and she starts to figure this out, and then in a last-ditch effort says, not Randall Tarly. She says, and, and Sam goes, you know him? Now, my question to you, Spencer, Jorah didn't know that this was Samuel Tarly? He couldn't have, right? Because how else? He would never have brought Danny over there to talk to him. I suppose he may not have known him. All we knew Sam was just as a, you know, a a meister in training at the Citadel. We've never seen him directly know that it, well, actually I'm trying to remember. Didn't he actually introduce himself to Jorah as Samuel Tarly at one point? We need to go back and look at it because if he did, world-class mistake here from Jorah. I mean, you don't put them together considering when Jorah knew what 
what um, Danny had done to the Tarleys. I mean, Jor, um, Jor was not there for it. It could just be a brain fart in his part, not tying together two two disconnected events. But I am I am well after we watch it. But I kind of remember Sam introducing himself in full name, and in which mm-hmm. case this is a, a clear mistake on Jor's part. What one thing I very much like and find interesting about this scene is that when it's out, when Danny's now realized what has occurred and what she had now has to talk about. You can almost visibly see her put on the queenly mask of yep. where emotion leaves her voice. Any emotional picture she had with Sam previously cuts away as she just delivers a monologue from on high of what she had ordered. And it is cold. It is severing the emotional connection she was already building in that moment. It is, in some ways, I feel like Danny trying to protect herself in a way she often does of where when she has to confront something unpleasant, she puts on the regal mantle once again and presents it in that way. But it is just cutting after cutting after cutting. And it only keeps getting worse for Sam as the conversation goes on. Yeah. So Danny, when when um, Sam says, oh, did you know my dad? Danny explains that she offered to let him retain his lands and titles if he did, then he refused. Sam pieces this together. He starts to tear up, but he says, well, at least I'll be allowed home again now that my brother is the Lord. Oh, my God. Uh, Danny says, just like you say, stoic, queenly, and probably in her mind, she thinks it's queenly. Uh, Your brother stood with your father. Then Sam loses it. And it's interesting, the reaction, the difference in his reaction to hearing about his father as opposed to his brother, Dick Ontarly. He really hears about his brother. Uh, And he says, thank you, Your Grace, for telling me, but may I? And she says, of course. And then Danny gives this sort of knowing look to Jorah, but there wasn't a lot of empathy there. And anybody who is subscribing to the Mad Queen um, theory or the theory that there will be a significant like rift that will, will result in war between John and Danny, you have this scene to point to because I think this this could be the beginning of that if they wanted to go that way. I think you have this scene and you have now Sam as the embodiment of it because John listens to Sam in a way he listens to nobody else. Sam is his best friend. He tr- John trusts him implicitly, cares for him probably as much as much or more than anyone. If Sam is de- very much down in the Mad Queen camp in terms of viewing Danny in that light, it's going to have an effect on John. I don't see how you can. I don't see how that. Your best friend having that viewpoint is not going to alter your view, even of the love of your life, if you want to view Danny, Danny and John's relationship in that light. Um, it, it's an interesting scene. Jorah is, displays more emotional reaction than Danny does. I don't see it as Danny, you know, acting the Mad Queen. I see it as Danny, in some ways, trying to protect herself from this emotional situation by just presenting it as, you know, an executive order, presenting it as a statement from the Queen, rather than leave herself vulnerable in some ways, or even just having to confront herself about the, na- about the moral moral viewpoints on what she ordered in the past. No, I don't think they're going to Mad Queen, but I do think they might be going rift between Danny and John because I think that what's going to frustrate John about this is that Danny is never going to apologize or admit she was wrong. No, she and won't. She's doing that because she's the queen and what she says is law, but John was a king, and as king, he didn't mind telling you when he thought he screwed up. Yeah, uh, he didn't. He didn't use the fact that he was a king to excuse any behavior that he ever, you know, exhibited or any actions that he ever took. So I think that's going to be a riff, um, especially considering just how far Sam goes with his dislike of Danny. We'll get that that in the next scene. But there is this really great moment where Sam he goes out in the courtyard. He's crying. He's clearly disheveled. He sees Bran, walks over. <laughs> I love this, Spencer. What are you doing here? Waiting for an old friend. 
<laughs> so great. Doesn't explain oh, God. it. We don't, is the best. we don't know what he means right now. No, but we do know at the end of the episode, uh, he's waiting for Jamie Lannister. Oh, yeah. Uh, Bran tells Sam to go tell John the truth now. He gamely realizes that John trusts Sam more than anyone. If Sam delivers this news, it's gonna it's gonna carry a lot more weight than if Bran does. And and you know that's a little bit of self awareness here from Bran because Bran's got to seem like a pretty big fucking weirdo to John right now. Yeah, cool. Um, and did you, he's got to be thinking all kinds of things like man, his brain got messed up on that fall. You know all kinds <laughs> of stuff. But with 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 Sam to Sam to go up and say, look, I'm telling you, this is the truth. John's gonna accept it, and he kind of does. So John's down in the crypt, well, qu- Ned's statue. Qu- question before we leave the sink, and it's a question I've had for a while on this show. Why does this matter so much to Bran? We've seen previously in this episode that Bran does not give a shit about politics and, inter- and interactions between political figures or any discussion about who should be in charge or who shouldn't. But this has been a thing that Bran has kept returning to. This has been like the most important aspect of his training with the Three-Eyed, cr- three-eyed Crow. Uh, like the last thing Three-Eyed Crow instilled in him before he faded from existence. Why does this matter so much? I mean, from our perspective, this is just a political issue about who's going to sit a throne that may not be there or may not matter. Why is Bran saying that John has to know now this? Why does it matter? I don't think we necessarily have an answer, but I'm curious of what your thoughts are. I have two theories. Uh, the first, I think, is less likely than the second. The first is that, you know, he when he when he makes the discovery, uh, you remember he goes back in time, he does his, his, his whole Three-Eyed Raven thing, and he sees yeah. Rhaegar and Lyanna getting married. One of the first things he says is, he's never been a bastard. And so it might be important for him to tell John who he is, that he's never been a bastard. You know, like that, because that's been something that's weighed on John this entire time. Now, I think that's less likely because Bran doesn't show a heck of a lot of empathy anymore. I think what's more likely is that Bran believes that John, his destiny is to be the leader. Mm-hmm. His destiny is the one is to be the one that leads them out of this that wins the battle for the dawn and actually uh you know uh, you know rules and, and that that's part of what has to happen now and and brand would be in a position to know that um given his his powers so i think he might see john learning this information as a necessary step in a multi-step process for him to actually uh, fulfill his destiny, which is so important if everybody's going to survive. I, I agree fundamentally that that seems to me the most reasonable theory for how much, you know, generations apparently of people in this position, or at least well, the last two, have invested themselves in this coming to pass in John having this knowledge. That clearly they view John as a necessary catalyst to their ultimate success. That whatever pathways they have foreseen, this is the only one that works. we got to have John in this position. He has to recognize this authority. He has to claim the leadership mantle. Otherwise, everything falls apart. Whether you want to say that's part of the prince that was promised or whatever else or whatever other prophecy you want to believe in or not, or not I agree that that seems the most reasonable interpretation of why they've invested so much in politics that they otherwise don't appear to care about. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so we can move on to the scene. I think this is the scene of the episode. It's my favorite scene of the episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, John is in the crypts. He's at Ned's statue fitting. And Sam comes in and trips. Um, and Sam, the first thing out of his mouth, he says, I know I'm not supposed to be down here. Now, compare that to when Littlefinger went down to the crypt. <laughs> he just showed up, walked in, and acted like he owned the place. Exactly. And it really pissed John off. And Sam immediately says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know I'm not supposed to be here. And Sam, John gives him this big hug. It seems like this is the first time they've seen each other at Winterfell. 
uh, which is a little weird. I would think that that they would have seen each other before well, now, well, like best friends. Johnny confronts him. Have you been hiding from me? Have you been here all this time? Where, dude? What's going on? Exactly. Yeah. Um, Sam asks if uh, John knew what Danny did. He, he gets right to it. He goes, "You know what she did." Clearly, John does not know. Uh, and I find it interesting that he was never told um, by either Tyrion or Danny, and it may be that Danny instructed them. I'm just I'm just guessing here. Instructed them not to tell John, but well, they, um, they likely rightfully figured know. that John would not take it well. And as played out in this scene, John struggles as he goes to try to justify that he might have done the same thing, and both he and Sam know that's bullshit. Yeah, they do. So Sam asks uh, John if he'd do it. John kind of deflects by saying he's executed those that have disobeyed him before. And Sam says, but you've also shown mercy to those who don't bend the knee. And John says, well, I wasn't a king, but you were. You've always been. I gave up my crown, Sam. I gave up my crown. I'm not the king of the north anymore. I'm not talking about the king of the north. I'm talking about the king of the bloody seven kingdoms. And this is where it all comes to the head. John turns around and looks at Sam and says, what are you talking about? Yeah. And Sam says, look, me and Bran, we pieced it together. We worked it out. He said, I had the diary of an old Septon and Bran has... Whatever Bran has. has. Yeah. <laughs> he says, and I, I like... God, John, John Bradley kills this. Oh, yeah. He takes the time. You, I mean, when you're delivering information like this, you need to deliver it the way that Sam does. It's slow. Yeah. It's methodical. It's and structured to out. Take it in. Yeah. Your mother was Lyanna Stark. Your father was Rhaegar Targaryen. Your real father. You've been a bastard. You've never, been, you've a never bastard. been a bastard. You are a Targaryen, true heir to the Iron Throne. John fumbles, and I like his first reaction here. If I was writing this, I would have had this be his first reaction. He yeah. says, my father was the most honorable man I've ever met. You're saying he lied to me all my life. Sam puts that in perspective for John. Yeah, he and, gets and his John head on straight. Figure it out. Yeah, John figures it out right away, and he says, look, you know, you, Ned promised that he'd protect you. And he did. Robert would have killed you if he knew Mm-hmm. John is fumbling here, and Sam reiterates that John is the rightful king. Aegon, Targaryen, six of his name, King of the Seven Kingdoms, all of it. Sam says Danny should uh Sam says Danny shouldn't be the queen. Uh John struggles with that. He goes, Oh, that's treason. He goes, It's the truth. And then John uh Sam delivers the gut punch. Oh yeah. Here of the uh, I mean I, I mean of course it's a gut punch to figure out that hey, you're actually a Targaryen, here's who you're family uh or your, your parents are um but this line i think is the line that you can look to to say okay if john is going to turn on danny uh this is where that seed got planted and sam turns to john and says you gave up your crown to save your people would she do the same and john you can look at his face immediately he knows no she would not yeah, I, that that is the thought that is going to fester in his head right there. And it, it, I agree with you. This is an incredibly powerful scene. John Bradley just utterly kills it. Kit Harrington does a great job in terms of responses. I love, as you said, that the first thing that goes into his head is the the life that he's built around his, his view of Ned Stark is just coming crashing down for a second as he's being confronted by this. And it takes Sam to get his head on straight with respect with, with respect to him. But yeah, very powerful scene. One that's going to be very important going forward. And I think fair to say the absolute worst possible thing from John's perspective he could have been told right now. He does not, if in his mind, he does not need this shit right now. Yeah, you see him even backing up as Sam is talking, like trying to get away from it. Yeah. Um, but I, I was just interested in how aggressive 
Sam was with John's claim. Oh. And I wonder if he's going to continue doing so because he's going to have to be a little bit more careful. I mean, obviously he's talking to John so he feels safe, but he needs to be careful about pushing this claim because even if everybody figures out who John really is, the person who stands up and says, oh, well, isn't he, shouldn't he be king? He's the traitor. That's going to be trouble. You, yeah. you, you can't just do that on an island. Well, um, that's going to have to be a, a, a concerted effort among a lot of uh, powerful parties. Oh, yeah. And I got two, two brief things to say there. I know we're going massively over time with this, but we're having fun. Um, point number one, a lot of what I think Sam is coming for here is his own personal outrage at Danny right now. I think he very much believes John to be a better ruler. I think he very much feels obliged to tell John this. But in this particular moment, he's viewing this as a way of getting back at Danny. I don't think it's his primary motivation, but I think that is an undercurrent that is bleeding in and is going to motivate him in terms of his passion by which he's putting this forward. Oh, no, I disagree with that. Do I, don't think you're, yeah, I don't think you're giving Sam enough credit. I don't think that this is I don't think this is as much personal to him as I think Sam is able to look at the situation and say this is not how the ruler of the Seven Kingdoms should operate. Well, no, no. You don't you don't exterminate the entire house. You know, right away. Like you don't you, just because I mean you keep him as prisoner, you do other things. You don't just, just destroy one of the great houses of the Seven Kingdoms. This is what Tyrion was trying to tell her. This is a bad move. And I think that Sam is I think, I don't know, I think he's probably as a character able to intellectualize it, to remove himself from the situation and say, yes, I'm upset that he killed, that she killed my uh, father and brother. I don't like that. That hurts me personally. But I can also look at the situation and say, this is indicative of her as a ruler and this is problematic. And I agree. I think most of the scene hammers out that as passionate as he is about this from his own personal pain, there's an analytical way of analyzing or responding to this, or at least how he presents it to John. But I think He's framing it not only as an endorsement of John, he's framing it as a rebuttal of Danny. I think that's part of the motivation, too. But in terms of how he goes about this, we've seen before, particularly with when um, uh, Sam helped get John elected uh, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, that Sam is really good when he wants to at building a base of power to get the, to get the event that he wants to come about to come about. So I think if Sam has become diehard at doing this, He's going to do the same damn thing in terms of talking to the other potential claimants, or the other potential people of power, to bolster a array of support. I don't picture Sam being the guy that just stands up without any prior knowledge or any prior coordinating things and just says, John should be king, screw you. I don't see I that agree. happening. I agree, but I, I do think if, you know, if you're a Danny fan, you got to start being a little nervous that you've made that enemy. Yeah. I right, because very much he is agree. very capable. John, as you mentioned, he did it with to get it, getting John elected uh, Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. Uh, he is very capable of presenting arguments for the consolidation of power or getting people behind certain, and especially John, right? Because he's got all, especially the, John. all the thing that John, all the things that John have done. And this is a group of people um, in the North who who kind of probably are looking for an out, you know, looking for a reason to, to reject Danny. And if we're being honest here. Now, now John's got a dragon. Right? Yeah. So, it gives them. I the, don't know. It gives them the best of both worlds scenario. They want to like John. They like John, but they're nervous about the people he's associating with. If he can provide them a means of essentially co-opting that basis of support, but doing it through only him, they're down. They're in. Uh, it is. It is very much the scenario Davos is painting for them about John's your ticket here. You need the support and the love that people have for John to make to provide an endorsement of this army you've brought to bear in the situation. So John's claim to throw out now, if people believe it's incorrectly, assuming Danny's willing to not just launch a civil war over it, could be a rallying cry that they kind of really need right now.
Yeah. Or it could be a sort of like where they look at each other and go, well, we have to get married now. <laughs> the <laughs> Westeros equivalent of a problems. shotgun wedding. <laughs> um, okay, so let's cut to Tormic, uh, Tormund and Beric. They have survived um, the falling of the wall at Eastwatch by the Sea. Uh, and they are with some red shirts walking up uh, to Last Hearth. <laughs> Uh, we know it's Last Hearth because we see the Umber sigils inside, and there has clearly been death uh, and destruction. There's blood, but there's no bodies, and that equation equals the Night King. Oh, yeah. Um, they hear something in a hallway. They hide, um, and then they hear something else, and then they attack. Barrett's sword lights the room up. It's Ed, and he yells, Stay back! He's got blue eyes! <laughs> I've always had blue eyes. <laughs> Torment says I've always had blue eyes. Ed is the best. And then he takes it takes Ed longer than it should to figure out that, that uh Torben's actually okay. And then they hug. Uh, they they greet they each hug. other as friends. Yeah, and and that's so think about how so so far the Night's Watch and the Wildlings have gone. Yeah. So we're now like basically the de facto head of the Wildlings and the de facto head of the Night's Watch. When they see each other, they're so relieved they embrace. Yeah, it's it's just great. I mean, this is this is John's legacy. Beric uh, asks if they found anyone, and it's poor little Ned Umber. His limbs have been cut off. He's mounted on a wall with a spiral of limbs around him that looks surprisingly like the Targaryen sigil. Um, they start talking about uh, you know basically Tormund says, "Hey, look, their army is between us and Winterfell." Uh, so we can't get to Winterfell, and, and Ned's, uh, Ed Dollar's Ed says, "Well, we rode here on horses." And Tormund says, "Well, if we double up, maybe we can we can get there before them if the horses don't give out." Mm-hmm. Um, right at the end of them making this plan, um, little Ned Umber wakes up. Uh, he starts screaming and screeching. He starts stabbing, and Beric uses his flaming sword to light him on fire. In doing so, the entire spiral uh, of limbs goes up in flames and makes this big flaming spiral looking pattern on the wall it's a really creepy scene probably one of the creepiest scenes the show has ever pulled off um i know it made my wife uncomfortable i looked over and she was like looking away from the screen before we get started we can we can read a lot into this right we can, oh, yeah. we can talk about the symbol we can talk i don't really want to do too much of that i just want to talk about it within the context of, a, of the plot and if you have any like significant theory you want to throw out great but i mean i think you could you could probably do a whole podcast on just this scene no i was gonna say the symbols harkening back to scenes we've, symbols we've seen of them back in like season three season three and season seven it's definitely a persistent scene of them i think its intention is to be creepy we've seen and in season one remember the very first oh, yeah. scene of season one they, i think mance raider once put it that they're always the artists we've seen this before that they like this iconography and i think we've talked the reasons for it if we want to discuss in that way is the night king like psychological warfare We've seen lots of that before. They like to spread fear and, you know, break the enemy from within before they ever encounter them on the field. And this is the kind of thing that does that. That's the emotional reaction I had to seeing this scene of just, dear fuck, what are we we encountering right now? So I think that's the point of it. And I think that Night King succeeded in that regard. I agree. Uh, Okay. So then we see a rider go into Winterfell. He goes through Wintertown and then into Winterfell. And it's, it's Jamie. He clearly has had a long ride. He's kind of shaking it off. He looks around the courtyard. Probably a little bit of nostalgia. He's been there before. Um, He looks across the courtyard, and it's a boy in a wheelchair uh, staring daggers right through him. And it's Bran. Mm -hmm. He's been waiting for him. Jamie is the old friend. End of scene. That is your first episode of Season 8. Spencer, what did you think? I thought it was a very solid episode. I mean, we 
we usually anticipate for first episodes of seasons it's mostly going to be foundational, but they really did a lot of content here in terms of just setting up all the characters for the first time in years coming back to the same situation together. Conf- being in the same setting, confronting the same events, in a way we've really not seen in a long time. The show is contracting, and it's done it fairly well. I thought most of the interactions, most of the reunions played out very well, were very heartfelt, very meaningful. I thought the writing was pretty high quality. I, we've got some quibbles about certain interactions between certain characters and certain characters that we just plain are having a hard time liking right now, but I think that's intentional and well done in that regard. And uh, yeah, I thought it was a very solid episode, as despite a few uh, quibbles around the margins. Yeah, I mean, the, the dragon riding thing really bugged me, um, but they they got there, and it's this is a common theme for the show in later epi- uh, later seasons is that they get to where they want to go, but how they get there you can have a problem with. But I, I of course they needed to get to the point where John is riding Rhaegal. Um, I would have done it by having Rhaegal save John when he went in the water mm-hmm. um, during the um, the battle beyond the wall. Very much season, agree. Very much seven, agree. Uh, episode six. If he if Rhaegal would have picked him up with a claw and then just thrown him on his back, I think that would have been really impactful and it would have made a lot more sense. Um, nonetheless, they got there. He's riding the dragon. But I'll tell you, um, this episode gives me a lot of faith in where they're going in season eight. It was a great setup episode it was super super entertaining mm-hmm. very rewatchable i've probably watched episode like four times now um and i'll probably watch the fifth tonight i tell you i, I loved it i love the interaction with writing love the score raymond Waldy still throwing his fastball I mean, right. that guy is so good uh so yeah uh i'm gonna be a fanboy this season i can already tell you and i appreciate that they can still surprise me even from just the opening moments i was surprised that they invested the time and effort in making truly new opening credits that are tailored to this season they're tailored to each episode that caught me off guard it shows that they're putting they're not just you know sitting on their laurels and riding out time to end this they're actually investing effort in making this a quality production in a way that i was occasionally worried about some some of the last seasons but I am reassured. I am hopeful. I am look going to the next episode excited to what I'm going to see next. All right. We agree. Let's go through best line of the episode. Okay. I got a few. All right. Start. Uh, after you, sir. It's your, it's, uh, it's your show. Sure. Um, <clears throat> we don't have time for all this. The Night King has your dragon. He's one of them now. Wall has fallen. The dead march south. That that is just the perfect Bran scene. There's just no censor. There's no consideration for any of this crap. Here's what you need to know. Here's what I care about. Let's get going with it. Very in very in character Bran right then. Uh, for me, I will offer a line that is just so in character Lyanna. Your Grace, but you're not, are you? You left Winterfell and came and came back. I'm not sure what you are now, my lord. Nothing at all. Perfect in character Lyanna scene that she's confronting John about this in front of all the assembled lords. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will continue on that scene. I had a choice: keep my crown or save the North. I chose the North. A great one. Very. That is. It's the philosophy and principles of rule of John embodied right there. Uh, I will offer a great scene, a great interaction between Sansa and Danny. What do dragons eat anyway? Whatever they want. That's a powerful little line right there by Danny that stops sense in her tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, last time we spoke, was it Joffrey's wedding? <laughs> Miserable affair. Credit to Sansa. That's a great line. <laughs> it shows a coldness and, uh, and violent practicality to her character that has grown over time. 
uh, I'll offer a quote from from um, from Tyrion that I think is a proper compliment to Sansa. Many underestimated you. Most of them are dead now. Yep, I like that one. Um, I think you have to say this one, even though she's being mean. Um, I used to think you were the most clever man alive. It's, I don't want to endorse that line because it's just so damn mean. Uh, I'm going to offer one of my favorites just because I think it is so perfect, Maria. You used to be taller. <laughs> I would I would do the whole thing. Oh, do um, it. Go on. It's a, it's a uh, wonderful series. Yeah, you used to be taller. How did you sneak up on me? How did you survive a knife through the heart? I didn't. It's <laughs> a great interchange between the two. Uh, you want to go next or me? We kind of picked the same one there. Ah, keep going. Okay. You pick the losing side and it visibly shrugs. Eh, then I'll sail the Iron Fleet somewhere else. But first, I'm going to fuck the queen. Mm-hmm. Um, how? I've given you justice. An army in the Iron Fleet. My heart is nearly broken. <laughs> I, I think know. I condensed that a little bit, but you get the point. You, you get the point, and you know I'll offer a quote from Cersei in the same scene, despite the fact they almost immediately undercut it. You want a whore? Buy one. You want a queen? Earn her. It's, it's a good line, even if you know they kind of undercut it immediately. Yeah. I got one from Kyburn. Poor girl. The pucks will have her before the year. Which <laughs> girl? Great line. Uh, I, mean, I actually enjoy another interchange between uh, Cersei and Euron, of where she says, "You're insolent. I've executed men for less. They were lesser men." Because she doesn't really have a response to that. It actually is a pretty effective point, a point out by him. Uh, I got I got a couple short ones here. Um, that fucking family. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a, a wonderful bronze summary of the, of the ultimate conclusions about the Lannisters, right there. Uh. I'll, you know, it's a wonderful send-off between Theon and Yara, but what is dead may never die, but kill the bastards anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got Cersei. I wanted those elephants. <laughs> I love that. Why are they taunting us with that? How expensive could, well, I, I, I was about to say how expensive could it be to film elephants, but we still haven't seen friggin' Ghost in like three seasons, so I'm guessing expensive. Ooh, yeah, let's not get on that soapbox. All right, all right. Uh, a proposal is what I'm proposing. On the off chance that we survive the Night King, what if the Seven Kingdoms for once in their whole shit history were, f- were f- ruled by a just woman and an honorable man? Okay, how about this one? <clears throat> the Northmen are loyal to Jon Snow, not to her. Sure. They don't know her. Free folks don't know her. I've been up here a while, and I'm telling you, they're stubborn as goats. You want their loyalty? You have to earn it. That is a perfect Davos line. That You, you can utterly imagine Davos saying that. It's even his perfect word choice. Uh, perfect line from Varys. Respect is how the young keep us at a distance, so we don't remind them of an unpleasant truth. Dot, dot, dot. Nothing lasts. Mm-hmm. I'm not doing anything with that weird dragon riding scene. <laughs> Skipping that? Fine. You're a cold little bitch, aren't you? Guess that's why you're still alive. Yeah, I, I would add in the lines before that of just the, you left me to die, first I robbed you. Great, nice little interchange between the two. Um, but for my own line, uh, I enjoyed the little interchange between Ari and Gendry. That's Valerian Steel. Always knew you were just another rich girl. And then just with perfect mocking pity and a smile, you don't know any other rich girls. Uh, I cut to John and Sansa. Do you think we can beat the army of the dead without her? You want to worry about who holds what title? I'm telling you, it doesn't matter. 
Yeah, but he has no response to that. Uh, I've got like three quotes in the same in the same scene with uh, Sam and John. Do we want to go through all of them? Um, let's hit two. All right. So you give your best. I'll give my best. Oh. All right. Then the other best, just because it's going to uh, be a resonating theme for at least the next few episodes. You gave up your crown to save your people. Would she do the same? That was quick because that was mine too. Okay. Uh, I don't have any more. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I mean, several great quotes between Sam and John, but I won't go into those. I'll just offer a final joke one just because it's funny. Stay back. He's got blue eyes. I've always had blue funny. eyes. That one's good. Like it. Like it a lot. Okay. Ooh, <laughs> man, this is tough. Oh. We had a few for this one. I don't, I don't envy you for your task. Well, I've got it near it down to two. Okay. I've got it. Oh, that fast. All right. Enlighten us, sir. What was the best quote of season eight, episode one? Best lines. Season eight, episode one. Winterfell. We finally have a new episode. We finally have a new best line of the episode. It is... I've been up here a while, I'm telling you. The stubborn states. I want their loyalty, I have to earn it. You, that line just tickled you so much. It's perfect, and it's a perfect representation of what, what Danny and John are dealing with this entire episode. It's, it's the through line of the episode. And, and it shows how, ve- I mean, Davos does not get enough credit for how intelligent that he is. This is an excellent, very quick read on the Northerners and what Danny's camp needs to do to get their loyalty. He's reading this perfectly, and he's right. And I wonder how fast at least Tyrion and Varys are going to come around to his point of view. I think by even by the end of the scene, they were recognizing that he wasn't wrong. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, we've done a recap. We've done best line of the episode. That means only next segment, Book Nerd Bitching. Spencer, take it away. All right. Well, for Book Nerd, book nerd Bitching, I have six delightful topics for you. I expect you to pick your usual two or three. Sound good to you, sir? Let's do it. All right. First one. Reference this one a little bit already, so there may not be much to add, but... The comparisons between Jon Snow and Torn Stark, the king who knelt. The idea of self-sacrifice and the basis of the Stark rule. Uh, option number two, Harry Strickland and the Golden Company. How are they presented on the show? How are they presented in the book? And what should we draw from that? Uh, the silence. I love that they finally reference that um, Euron's crew is mute. What can we learn about the crew and the ship, the silence? Uh, next option, dragon riding. I think we already kind of covered that one to excessive degree, so we may write that one off. Uh, next one, obsidian as a weapon of war. Is what the show depicts reasonable and grounded in either the history of the show, history of the uh, Song of Ice and Fire, and the history of our world? And final option, the last hearth. What can we learn about the seed of the Umbers? Okay, I've got two I want you to do. What you got? Harry Strickland and the Golden Company and Last Hearth. Easy enough. You know, I hate you because you picked. You immediately cut away all the ones I like. But you know, fine, we'll do those. We'll do the last. As is tradition. It, as is tradition. Uh, we're going long for time, so I'm, I'll keep it short to a certain degree. So we'll do the last hearth first. But last hearth is a well named. It's a well named castle, and that other than the castles that line the wall that are run by the Night's Watch, it is the last major holdfast as you go north from Winterfell, approaching the wall. It's situated about 150, 200 miles south of the wall, and it is. The base of the Umbers going back, like so many northern castles, into time immemorial. This was the basis by which the Umbers were petty kings during the Age of Heroes. This was the point by which they exerted their control and made a claim for rulership a part of the north. It is a old 
stable base by which the Umbers have exerted their influence for literally thousands of years. And now, as you saw in this episode, it has fallen to the Night's King. So, in terms of geography, what does this mean practically for us? As said, Last Earth is about 150-200 miles south of Eastwatch. How far away is it from Winterfell, and what can we expect going forward? I think you, you and I would both agree from what we saw in the trailer in the last next episode that see, uh, Season 8, Episode 2 is probably going to be another building foundational episode. We're not expecting a battle quite yet. Is that a fair, that a, that a fair read? Absolutely. Yep. Okay. So we got the front of the building episode. Part of the reason for that is the North is fucking massive. To say that, you know, Winterfell and Last Earth are in the same, you know, region of the Seven Kingdoms is true, but doesn't really tell you much when you realize that it's probably about another 400 miles between Last Earth and Winterfell. Army of the Dead has a long slog to go. Now, the show's played fast and loose with geography. That's the kind of distance that Littlefinger could make about three times in the same episode. Army of the Dead looks like they're going to take about two episodes to make the distance. But in terms of the last hearth, it is, as said, the base of the Umbers by which they ruled for many thousands of years. It, it has a delightful history of various odd events, like apparently they had a melee there about 100 years before the show, where unlike most tournaments we see in King's Landing, when the Umbers do a tournament, 18 people die. Because the Umbers don't mess around when they're doing single combat, even if it is just for show. But... Ooh. Brief run on the last earth. Don't have much really to add there, but just wanted to present what the castle is and how much it really, like so many of the northern castles, is grounded back in just the ancient history of this world. The north is old. Its bones extend back into the forgotten forgotten points of time. And the last earth is no exception. Uh, yeah, oh, I like it, Spencer, and I, and I like especially like it because last uh, earth is on um, the uh, updated intro. And it's worth noting the update intro. I will reference this more in the next episode. I'm curious to see if they keep on growing on it. I love that the ice path that the others have taken, we saw at the beginning of this episode, had already extended past Last Earth. I like that that's going to be possibly a growing and changing thing over time with the, with the show. Yeah, I completely uh, agree. No, that's great. Um, so that one, another bipartisan effort for you. You're really becoming quite the quite the purple. Um, the purple congrats, congressman, man. You, you passed this one. Both chambers, flying colors, president signs it. What's next? Harry Strickland and the Golden Company. Yeah, you know, I like to believe I'm learning from Sam in terms of building a consensus to be, uh, support my initiatives, but you know, I, I can only try. In terms of Harry Strickland and the Golden Company, we got a brief show of them in this episode, which kind of depicts what the, how the show's going to go with them. And I'm a bit, a bit disappointed by that, that the show clearly is intending to depict the Gold Company as a faceless, monolithic, disciplined, but otherwise characterless organization. And that's fine. They want them to be Cersei's minions. That's the read I'm getting going forward. And we can see that first and foremost in how they chose to depict Harry Strickland. Harry Strickland is the leader of the Gold Company. He is their captain, uh, captain general, as they call him. As we saw here, the read I get out of him is that he looks more than vaguely like Jamie. He is a blonde pretty boy with an accent who wears armor and is probably going to be a soldier in combat. Not much else we're, we, I can read out of him, and that's probably about all we're really going to reasonably get of his character throughout this season. At least that's my anticipation based on what they've shown. That is disappointing in the sense that the Golden Company and Harry Strickland himself are very complex characters that don't fit into the grooves you would expect for them. Harry Strickland, first and foremost, he is the Captain General of the most elite, disciplined, capable, reputable uh, mercenary company in Essos. An organization that stretches back generations of accomplishment and just combining elite forces in a combined armed strategy in a way that 
almost no other organization in the, in the, in the world of, of Westeros and Essos do. And he seems entirely incapable and just a, a lesser a, a lesser descendant of these great rulers that have seated before him. Now, this is a guy that is carrying the mantle of friggin' bitter steel, the Targaryen bastard that formed this company, of, you know, of, uh, of Miles Toyne, of just um, Mare the Monstrous, countless prior leaders of the Golden Company, whereas he is best described as a mostly bald, overweight, likable, but completely non-combat guy. He's basically an accountant, a really good accountant, but his job is in no way combat. But he's the guy the gold company is selected for this role because the Golden Company is an organization that respects the fact that if you are really good at organization, if you are really good at negotiating quality contracts for us, if you're really good at maintaining the, the discipline and instilling it in our troops that has been a hallmark of organization for going back a couple hundred years, you should be in charge. You can put the combat aspect of our character in, under the command of your subordinates. It's honestly a secondary part of what we do. So it's a recognition of who Harry Strickland is and an endorsement of his abilities that the show really has never gotten behind. We've seen before in the show that people like, say, Stannis and Tywin lead from the front, that Stannis is you know, climbing the walls of King's Landing and fighting on the battlements, that Tywin's leading the charge to rescue the, um, the Lannister forces in King's Landing at the Battle of Blackwater. That's really not in keeping with what we see of their characters in the books, that these are behind-the-scenes generals, and they're very much respected for that that they're excellent strategists that bring their resources to bear and succeed on that reason, and command from the rear because they can best command from having the perspective to see their whole army. That's something the show's really left behind. But in terms of Harry Strickland himself, regardless of what background the show wants to give for him, what we know about him is that he is very much indicative of many of the upper echelon of the Golden Company and many of the other exiles and vagabonds that make up their ranks. He is descended from House Strickland, which was a house that's actually supported um, Damon the First Blackfire and the First Blackfire Rebellion. It goes back that far. They're foundational members of the Golden Company. Uh, likely a house descended from the Reach that we're not uh, that was okay in the Reach that we're not sure about that. But despite the fact he's been in exile for now for four generations, Harry Strickland is very proud of that in the same way a lot of his other members of the Golden Company are. That from his perspective, he he actually boasts that he's been gold for four generations. Because four generations of his family have been fighting to come home. That's a motivation of the Golden Company we have to remember, is that they're not necessarily in it for the money. They're not in it for a lot, a lot of what these other mercenary groups are. And it's part of the reason that they've been so disciplined and dedicated and never have broken a contract in the past, famously, is that their ultimate goal is not to become wealthy and retire. Their ultimate goal is to come home. These are exiles. These are the losers in wars. These are bastard sons that have been cast out of their homes. These are the crop of Westeros that has been exiled and unable to come back. And they want desperately to find a means to do so. They've supported countless black fires in the past as part of trying to invade and retake Westeros in a way that they can successfully remove themselves from sin from whatever, exiled them, whatever led to their exile in the past. They've failed at every single opportunity. But, at least in the books, they've found a new climate under Aegon uh, Targaryen, and are hopeful that that'll be the new base by which they come home. So much is the idea of coming home part of their ideology that, really, they have no banners. They don't really, unlike in the big in the show, have no uniform. They dress as mercenaries do with all of their wealth and items upon them. 
their banner is just a gold flag. But the ultimate sigil of their company are the very heads of the captain generals that have come before Harry Strickland, from bitter steel on, dipped in gold, put on spikes. The heads of their prior leaders go for them because each one of them has made his men swear on his deathbed that in the end, when we go home, take me with you, have me at the forefront, let me lead the charge that brings us back to the glory that we deserve that has been taken from us. That's what the Golden Company stands for. They shouldn't be viewed as a foreign organization. They should be viewed as an organization that is dedicated to returning to the Seven Kingdoms and turning it into a place by which they can call a home once again. So I feel like the show has made the Golden Company dangerous, but generic in a way that is a loss. You lose a lot of the character when you just turn somebody into a minion, where in reality they have their own motivations and their own reasons for why they choose to fight where they do and who they choose to support. Yeah, I, you know, and they've introduced the Golden Company so late. I really think it's just a mechanism to have Cersei still have a formidable military presence. Um, I, I think so. The, the whole backstory to the Golden Company, while rich and while great, um, I don't think is of interest to the yeah. to them because it's really just a, a means to an end to get Cersei some sort of yeah. army so that the episode four, five, and six um, has some level of uh, of um, you know drama there. to it. Fair enough so, and I think that's apparent just even the numbers of where they literally doubled the size of the gold company on the show compared to what it is in the book to make them appear like Cersei has greater resources to bear. They want this to make it to make it reasonable that Cersei is in a strong position of power for whatever they want to plan for in the future. Again, they want to give her those resources. Worried. Such, yeah, not worried. I know you're not worried. Despite the fact the single most elite military organization, arguably in all of the world, is now serving under her banner, double in size to what it is in the books. But you're not worried. I get that. And she um, presumably still has some of the Lannister forces left. Yeah, I mean, presumably the bulk of the Lannister forces survived. When those, uh, uh, what, what, what's the term you refer to them? Uh, working women were discussing yes. the Lannister casualties at the Battle of the uh, Field of Fire 2.0. They were only said like a thousand guys died. That's really all they really talked about. It seems like the bulk of the Lannister forces really made it back into King's Landing with the gold that was the main thing they were looking to protect. They suffered horrendous losses, but it seems like the bulk of the Lannister army has survived intact. So that, coupled with the Golden Company, coupled with Euron's Ironborn, Cersei's got a lot of resources to bring to bear so long as she's able to keep them loyal to her banner. They probably lost somewhere between 500 and 1,000 in Casterly Rock, too. Because they had to get yeah. you know enough there to fully and Sully to actually attack it, uh, but yeah, you, your point's taken. They still, I mean, Cersei probably has in the neighborhood of I would say forty thousand soldiers, um, yeah, which is not, which not, is huge. Not even counting the fleet, not even counting what other levies she can draw from the other regions of the Seven Kingdoms that she does at least on paper control. So she has re significant resources to deal with whatever's coming south. It's just a very open question of what that's going to be. Not worried. Okay. Um, what else do we need to cover before we wrap up? No, I mean, I think we've covered a wide array of material. I know we're getting a little bit late on the end of things. Uh, all I can just say again is that I'm really reassured and hopeful based on what they showed here, that as much as I enjoy quibbling, as much as I will keep book nerd bitching as long as you'll let me do so, I the production values of the show are there, and more than even just that, the writing and the crafting and the care by which they're putting in it is back and present and persisting. And I'm... That leaves me with a very good uh, mindset going forward for what the show can give us. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, really enjoyed rehashing the episode with you again. Um, we're going to do our very best to get you a reaction episode um, on Sunday night, Monday morning. 
Um, we tried to do it this week. Uh, I had some issues on my end. We moved, didn't have internet. So that can be problematic. But we're going to try to do it. If, uh, but we, if we don't do it next week, we'll definitely do it for um, the big battle in episode three. You got to have a reaction pod to the big battle in episode three. I agree with you, Spencer. I'm hyped up about this season. I thought it was a very good first episode. It's clear they put care and a lot, a lot of money into it. Um, so, Except for elephants, apparently. Yeah, and direwolves. But okay. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to the GOT Got Questions podcast and the Mega Talks podcast channel. This has been a review of episode one of season eight titled Winterfell. We do not know the title of episode two. They're not giving us the title of uh subsequent episodes i guess they're they're being super secretive about it but uh we are going to review episode two next week we look forward to it spencer i look forward to talking to you till then mate. all right thanks everybody see you